0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
2: At Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
2: This is the
3: Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
3: BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. It's Thursday. A day after the Warriors got whipped. And the day before Friday. So get ready. Locked and loaded today. We've got a great show for you. We're going to be talking about cyber bombs. Do you even know what that is? Have you even heard of the term? Well, we are at war and apparently we don't have to use conventional weapons. I mean, we still do. We do. And we're not actually even at war. I mean. We are. Well. Sort of. I mean, our president isn't. Maybe it's like a police action. We just we have a couple hundred boots on the ground. We're observing. (laughs) We're not going to say we're at war, but we have a lot of different weapons to use. And cyber bomb is one that Ash Carter brought up with NPR months ago, and it's kind of it's created a little bit of a I don't know a little not a controversy but a little intrigue. Or like we just drop a bomb, a cyber bomb. Well, and we blow up the cyber.
0: I was trying I was telling you before. I was trying to find a an audio clip of this because you, when you hear him, he doesn't really sound confident that he quite knows what they are. Yeah. He has people that are really smart telling him what's going on. Yeah, we're, we're going to use a cyber. And you're bomb. listening and like, "Do you quite understand what this is, sir?" when you're talking about deploying these things and basically computer programs that attack other computer
3: programs the goal is to impact communications impact financial records specifically isis other terrorist groups social media forums just mess that all up and even misinform sometimes like not take them down but misinform so then all of a sudden the troops are instead of going to fight on the front they all end up at a bar
0: sometimes confusing people makes it easier yeah
3: See, and we're going to be talking about that with Dr. Sean Lawson from um, the uh, University of Utah, professor of communications. And uh, India was interestingly—they were surprised because in their in one of their one of their uh, articles in their newspaper, were like apparently we're dropping cyber bombs now. They what? like they bought in. Like a, yeah. there's a bomb. Uh, we're going to get into it because it's it's it maybe a kinder may, not maybe not kinder gentler, but people are still dying. But now they're they're dying by people on computers. Yeah. They're moving troops certain places. It's pretty cool. It's cool. I mean, it's a cool idea. If you've got to die, if you've got to be in the military, you don't have to pull a trigger anymore. Now you can just hit return. There you go. Bada boom, bada boom. We'll get into that. Um, also, just a lot of incredible news. Um, you know why? Because it's Jerky Day, which I – this is total irony. Hmm. I had jerky this morning because my wife went to the store yesterday. I have it every day driving home. Do you really? Yeah. Do you really? It's my protein as I go home. It's good. does a body good. We'll get back uh, to Jerky uh, throughout the entire show. (laughs) Three hours. (laughs) Look forward to it. But first, let's get to Terry, find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up?
0: Thanks, Matt. Bernie Sanders is set to meet with President Obama in the White House today. Then he meets with Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid. And later, he'll hold a campaign rally at RFK Stadium Ahead of next Tuesday's Washington, D.C. primary at the White House meeting, which Sanders requested, by the way, Obama will gently and respectfully prod Sanders towards recognizing Hillary Clinton's victory and harnessing his campaign to support her and defeat Donald Trump. This, according to uh, aides at the White House, Obama won't pressure Sanders to quit, aides say, and will help or offer to help Sanders continue pressing for the progressive ideas he espoused in the campaign. In other news, RNC Chairman Reince Priebus and House Speaker Paul Ryan are among the attendees for Mitt Romney's annual Utah retreat starting today, bringing together the hashtag NeverTrump movement with the GOP leaders who've said they will all vote for the presumptive nominee. While not specifically billed as an anti Trump event, Romney's Experts and Enthusiasts event will feature speeches <laughs> from people like Romney and Nebraska Senator Ben uh, Soss, Sass. Sassy. He's Sassy. Sassy. He's been very outspoken about uh, not, not backing Donald Trump at all. <laughs> Anti-Trump donors like CEO Meg Whitman and hedge fund manager Paul Singer will also be in attendance, leading insiders to wonder whether the event will be to use to evangelize against the controversial nominee. Hmm. The summit held in Park City at Deer Valley. Did you get your tickets? I
3: haven't checked the mail here, but okay. I'll, I'll check. Will you maybe check... Just we'll check it out. in the break, because I can't find my... If a
0: fleet of black SUVs is waiting outside the building <laughs> yeah, for you, that's you're, it. you're invited. Well,
3: yeah, or I'm arrested. Just got lost. Either way. One either way.
0: way. Uh, there is, it is... A question is, who will be evangelizing who at this yeah. meeting? Mm-hmm. Will the establishment leaders, will they be trying to pull all these other guys in, or will they be trying to pull the establishment away from Trump? It's just kind of an interesting meeting. Sounds like meeting, a
3: great meeting.
0: Which no one will be able to get into, because... All you hear is rumors. It will be interesting <laughs> because all the networks of all the people standing on dusty roads in Park City. Yes. Plus. Wait, waiting for the SUV fleets to whiz by and they go, that was somebody. Plus free continental breakfast. There you go. Mm. Uh, Colin Nathaniel Scott, hmm. 23-year-old man from Portland, Oregon, died after falling into a hot spring at Yellowstone National Park yes, on Wednesday. I heard this. The effort to recover him was called off as his remains could not be discovered. We extend our sympathy to the Scott Family. Park Superintendent said in the statement, "This tragic event must remind us all to follow the regulations and stay on boardwalks when visiting Yellowstone geyser basins." There have been 22 deaths in the park since 1890. It's like
3: 400 degrees. Yeah, and it's—I mean, uh. it, there, there's a bottom to it, but you can't really see it. It's there just was sort of a pit. A dad was carrying his 13-year-old kid and slipped, and he burnt his the child's leg. I mean, it's a. Why hasn't this
0: happened more? There's been tw- 20 deaths since 1890. And people I don't think people
3: get what it looks like there. I I There's a, Have you been there? They're just walk I don't know on this one.
0: Yeah, they said they're just boardwalk. They're boardwalk, but they're, looks they're not like, yeah.
3: you know They the, got to be careful.
0: Yeah, there's no railings. Uh, there's no way to so, sort of right. control the public. There's just sort of wooden like pallet looking looking walkways. Yeah, yeah. And that's all you have to walk on.
3: Well, and then there were those teenage kids. Do you remember that story a few months ago where they went out and ran across some of these things oh. and, and, and broke down the geyser, broke down the ground. Anyway, it created a whole big news media thing. But um, tragedy, that's sad. So they had to call it off. I was kind of figuring oh, that was going to happen. Uh,
0: and in other news, a scenic campground near the shores of Lake Tahoe is now plastered with warning signs after the U.S. Forest Service announced a flea from a yellow chipmunk tested positive for the plague. <laughs> A a flea from a yellow
3: chipmunk tested positive for the plague.
0: The Forest Service Lake Tahoe Division, as well as officials from El Dorado County and the California Department of Public Health, all confirmed the infectious disease presence in a flea found uh, at a campground in that area. The insect was taken from one of three rodents that were trapped during a routine pest maintenance on uh, May 18th. The plague confirmed uh, and receive what the the confirmation came on june second official officials say plague is naturally present in many parts of California and many
3: parts across the western u s right it 's just it 's so out there you know what this is telling us we shouldn 't get out to nature the geysers
0: yeah the hot pots you there occasionally people get the plague they get bit by something out in nature, yeah. and there it is, but we fact, have the ability to control we water. also
3: have we have um we have video. One of the things we want to start doing on the show is showing more video. Okay. Um, We're on the radio. Be- exactly. Okay. Exactly. And so what happens a lot of times on the radio, there's not. It's not as stimulating. Are you saying it's not quite
0: the visual medium
3: you, yes. you're hoping for? Okay. So we have been with this plague thing. Mm. We have been looking for video about with other animals with plague with a plague with the plague, and we found um, an interview. Of a very popular animal. Oh wow! That was uh, diagnosed with the plague, like the, the chipmunk. The chipmunk.
4: Why don't you make this
5: He's sad.
3: Oh. Wow. It's a hard story. <laughs> so we're going to start showing more video like the plague. that. The plague's pretty rough. It's also um, Donald Duck Day. It's Donald Duck Day. He didn't have the plague, or did he?
2: I'm not dead. What? Nothing
3: here's in know I'm not, <laughs> I'm not dead, dead yet. Um. Ah. See, we. You know what? The Park Service is probably hating all of this press. Yes. The bison. Mm. The you know the elk trampling people. The lady whose canoe the bear was eating. Was it a canoe? Kayak. A kayak. And the hot pots, and now the plague-ridden. The plague at Lake Tahoe. Chipmunks. Think of that, plague-ridden
0: chipmunks. Well, the flea on a chipmunk. Yeah. But then the flea bites the chipmunk.
3: Yeah, but who bites the flea? Exactly. Exactly. There's always a chain. There's always a chain. Um, Did you hear that the park service may start advertising? So we may see more advertising in our parks now. That's kind of pitiful. Like, uh, hey. Corporate sponsors? Viagra. Welcome to wherever. (laughs) Mount Rushmore. (laughs) But like stuff like that, all of a sudden you're going to have pharmaceutical companies, these companies promoting, and apparently it's all okay. Okay. Uh, no. Well. But doesn't that drive you nuts? Yeah, I'm sick of it. The, I don't. The I idea don't,
0: is to get away, right? And right. That just kind of brings it with you.
3: Why? Don't do this to us. Yeah. There was a whole article about the fact that now we're going to start advertising possibly in our parks. Decisions, by the way, being made by our congresspeople. That are being run by corporate America. How do you pay for it, though?
0: Pay for what? The national parks. Well, we're already paying for it. Well, I know, but apparently they need more.
3: No, they don't. They need to cut back in other places. Okay. (laughs) That's all they got to do. (laughs) You're making national park policy now? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's either that or all of a sudden we're going to go there and have billboards. No, on the back of a bison in the middle of Yellowstone Park. You're gonna ha- He's gonna be wearing a little a-frame board say, with advertisements on both sides. It'll be more high-tech than that. You think so? Yeah, it'll be like a, it'll be like a big, like a big bill. Like a. It'll be one of these digital uh, uh,
0: boards on the side of the road. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, or yeah, Because then you get five or six ads in that space instead of
3: one? Oh boy! <laughs> See, you're ruining it. Ruining it, um, Trump. What's going on with Trump? On Monday, he's. He's kind of backed off a little bit. Mm. He's isn't he he's he's only offending his own people now. Right. I mean the last two days. On Monday he says he will have a speech to go after the Clintons. Will the speech be with a teleprompter? Well, I don't know. Because many people think that like Mitch McConnell, I think it was, said the teleprompter, great step forward. People like the teleprompter. Keep the teleprompter. <laughs> I don't think he will. I don't think he will either. Yeah, uh, but it hasn't gotten him to this point. No, and it, it looks like the Twitter sphere was uh, heated up on the Bernie Sanders side. They were all a little bit, and you know, so this whole meeting with um, the president today—you got to be careful what you say, don't you think? You got to be careful. You nobody wants to offend the burn right now. The burn. Play clip
0: one. Hold on. Oh, President Obama will be on the Tonight Show. Yeah, this evening. They've already taped it. So this is a preview clip. Okay. Oh yeah. Clip one. Is Bernie going to endorse Hillary? Well, I, I, I'm sure they're going to have a conversation. Is he ever and, going to drop
6: out?
0: Uh, <laughs> or he's just going to stay in? I, I, and he's like, Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be talking tomorrow. He's going to be coming to the White House, and I, I, the, the main role I'm going to be playing in this process is uh, to remind the American people that this is a serious job. I, you know, this is not reality TV.
3: <clears throat> not go. reality TV. Yeah. Not. Um, it is a serious job. That's why Romney's got his people meeting Yeah, <laughs> up in the mountains in so Park City. There is a, uh, a movement, apparently. We got five weeks until the GOP convention. I think it's like Obama's trying to tell the GOP something. Uh, here's another clip of Obama worried about us.
2: Do you think the Republicans are, are, are happy with their choice? Uh, we are, but I
0: don't know how they. I don't know how they feel. <laughs> that, that, that was too easy. But the truth is, actually, I, I am worried about the Republican Party, and, and I know that sounds. Uh, yeah. you know what it sounds like. So there was a lot of self-editing going on in the interview. He's got to be really careful. (laughs) He's trying to tiptoe through uh, whatever minefield he's in. But the the latest thought from the, the GOP stop Trump movement is to get delegates to abstain from the first vote. Yeah. At the convention, the first round. Yeah, and then after you get out of that, the vast majority of delegates are then free to vote as they wish in the second and third rounds. So get to those second and third rounds, then we can take back our party.
3: Yeah, it's five weeks. The convention, so so they have just got to sell that to all the delegates. Every single
0: one. Yeah, I mean,
3: the deal is, I think you're going to see if if Trump, if you don't see Trump changing, I think you will see something something has to happen and
0: right? i think i think that's why he started reading off a teleprompter yeah. the family was all lined up perfectly behind him mm-hmm. he sounded very sane, instead
3: of just off the top of the <laughs> he head. He sounded less crazy.
0: He's not raging, calling people names, making up you know, yeah. nicknames again, which which people are concerned about. It's fun, I guess, to watch, but they're concerned because they're like, why does this look when you're yeah. sitting in the Oval Office and you're Ugh. talking about Crooked Hillary still,
3: probably. Right. And what, what, what will he be talking about in the Oval Office if he doesn't, when he's not campaigning, if he were to win, would he really just be tweeting all night? Yeah. And being, I mean, sending ugly tweets to
0: and he's North been a- Korea. Oh, and he's no, he been, likes North
3: Korea. He's been asked about all this. Yeah.
0: And his answers
3: don't No, I will be the best president know. you've ever seen. Yeah. And he also said he'll never let us down.
0: Yeah. So, and, I mean, he said it. He's never going to give us up. He's never going to let
3: us down. He's not going to run like, around and. Yeah. Sorry. Anyway, that was a good song. Um, <laughs> we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to get into this cyber bomb idea. Dr. Sean Lawson will be joining us. We're going to talk about new methods, new measures, new ways to go to war. Um, cyber bombing it's not dropping a bomb, but it's using technology to, uh, to affect, to create a change in your uh, opposition. It's a different kind of war, but it seems to be having some in- interesting success uh, against ISIS. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever heard of a cyber bomb? Earlier this year in February, Defense Secretary Ash Carter told NPR that the United States had begun a new line of combat against the Islamic State using cyber means, and they are now able to control and corrupt enemy networks. The usage of cyber as a weapon of war has generated uh, global media attention with reports of an American cyber bomb spreading quickly around the world. Questions as to what a cyber bomb really is have surfaced, and joining us today to tell us more about these bombs is Dr. Sean Lawson. He's an associate professor of communication at the University of Utah, author of the book Nonlinear Science and Warfare, Chaos, Complexity, and the U.S. Military in the Information Age. Dr. Sean Lawson, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. It's good to be with you. Good to have you back. Hey, you, uh, you, you, you were here a while ago talking with us about um, drones, but now, boy, I don't know if you heard this, we have a, a really big cyber bomb that we drop, and it tears down the entire internet in the Middle East. Uh, <laughs> have you heard about this? I have heard about this, Yes. <laughs> okay, teach us what a cyber bomb really is. It's From my understanding, it's not actually a bomb.
7: Uh, Yeah, no, it's not actually a bomb. In fact, I was sort of joking with uh, one of my colleagues in the office this morning and saying, um, you know, you you might as well be uh, calling to to interview me about unicorns. (laughs) Um, We
3: haven't seen one yet, have we? We
7: haven't seen one yet. (laughs) And that's um, sort of the same thing with uh, cyber bombs. Yeah. Um, Now, that's not to say that there are not, um, you know, cyber tools that – the U.S. military is using uh, to try to corrupt and disrupt, um, you know, the the networks that um, ISIS is using and and other adversaries as well. Uh, but to describe, you know, what the U.S. is doing as uh, dropping cyber bombs, as Ash Carter. Um, did back in February, and then his uh, deputy uh, secretary of defense Robert Work did uh, more recently in yeah. the last few weeks um, is a little bit of hyperbole, I would say.
3: I, I, I guess is the hype. Is it to hype and show the American people that look, we're doing something, or is it to intimidate other countries? Why are these Why are these dignitaries pushing this?
7: Um, I, yeah, I think that's part of it. I, I think there's a few reasons. Um, you know, uh, number one, I think it's difficult to communicate. So I, th- I think it's in part a communication problem yeah. and also an opportunity, right? So part of the opportunity is uh, what you just described, right? So it's an opportunity to potentially signal to other actors in the world, um, both allies and adversaries, that the United States has a new sort of technological capability. Um, that we are willing and and capable of using that uh, capability. Um, And so in some ways, it's it's a little bit refreshing in the sense that we're seeing um, officials talk more openly about the fact that we have these capabilities and we're willing to use them. So, for example, if we think back to a few years ago and when we learned about the U.S. use of a piece of uh, computer code uh, called uh, Stuxnet, yeah. right? which was uh, a, p- a piece of malware, really, that was uh, inserted into the Iranian uh, nuclear program, uh, nuclear facilities, um, to cause their centrifuges to sort of spin out of control hmm. and to destroy some of the centrifuges in an attempt to uh, sort of delay and disrupt their, um, their nuclear weapons program. Um, and that was, a, that was a huge development. Um, but it was done entirely in secret, and we, we only learned about it after the fact uh, because the malware sort of got out of control. It got out into the wild, and some of the um, you know, international um, computer security researchers and antivirus companies uh, came across this <laughs> software.
3: I guess that because it was
7: really a U.S. weapon.
3: Right? Because people from the Iranian uh, plants were like emailing out or something. How did it get out?
7: Well, we don't entirely know how it got out.
3: Probably Um, the same way AOL got out. You know what I mean? Remember (laughs) those days?
7: They they sent it to everyone's (laughs) house in a CD, and they... And then you couldn't get it off your computer. uh, 60 hours of free internet or something. Those Uh, were the days. Yeah, um, those were the days, right? (laughs) And um, so, you know, in that case, this was sort of a covert operation. The U.S. sort of unleashed um, what is still considered to be one of the most destructive, if not the most destructive, uh, cyber attack... Um, it was sort of a revolutionary thing at the time, but it was done entirely in secret. There wasn't mm. a lot of public debate w- about you know, using this new kind of capability. And so the U.S. came in for a lot of criticism after that. Um, so in this particular case, it is somewhat refreshing that at least U.S. officials are sort of trying to be a little more transparent, a little more open about um, the fact that we have these capabilities and we're using them.
3: Um, And they can be used a lot of ways. I mean, they can be used in communications and and bringing down communications or misinforming through communications. Right. I mean, it's it's pretty tricky stuff they're doing. They can hit bank accounts. They can. There's like there's almost no end to ways that they can influence ISIS through through the Internet or through their technology.
7: That's right. And so I think that. What you describe there is part of the reason why, you know, on the one hand, it's it's refreshing that they're being open and a little bit more transparent. Yeah. Uh, part of it is bravado, as you said before, right? Right. Um, but then uh, the complexity and the range of options for using these kinds of capabilities that you just described also points us to the fact that it's a little bit disconcerting that, um, you know, these officials are using such simplistic – kind of uh, descriptions, But I think it also sort of explains why they're using those descriptions, why they're, you know, sort of simplifying and using sort of hyperbolic rhetoric uh, by saying things like, oh, we're dropping cyber bombs. Because the fact of the matter is the range of potential options, the range of potential uses um, for the various capabilities that we have is quite broad, right? So it, it, it involves... Um, potentially, you know, hacking into adversary um, systems and uh, corrupting information on those systems. It can include engaging in deception operations. So, for example, we don't know a lot about the the specific details of what the U.S. is doing to ISIS in cyberspace, but um, I I believe it was David Sanger of uh, the New York Times had reported that one Um, you know, option that U.S. planners were were considering is uh, deception operations that could involve, for example, taking over the computers of known ISIS leaders, uh, sending out uh, what appear to be real emails but are actually emails that are being sent by the U.S. Mm. uh, to followers and, you know, for deception purposes, right? Uh, Maybe causing... um, ISIS members to gather at a certain location because they think they're having a meeting or they think they're planning for some sort of upcoming operation or attack or something, and then um, in actuality, you know, uh, we attack
6: them. Yeah,
3: bada-boom, bada-bing. Yeah, Yeah, right.
7: Something like this, right? Um, So there's lots of options. There's uh, denying access to information. There's corrupting access, you know, corrupting the information on, on enemy systems. Um, There's a whole range of of things that that can be done. Um, And so, you know, I think part of the reason why officials resort to the use of um, sort of hyperbolic and unfortunate (laughs) metaphors like cyber bombs is because it's difficult to explain those things Mm -hmm. in a concise way to the public. Um, And it's also difficult for the public to sort of visualize and imagine what these things are. Look like right? Yeah, we know what a bomb looks like. Right, we know what you know right. shooting a gun looks like. We know what airstrikes look like. We know you know airplanes and tanks and right. We we can visualize these things, um, but it's hard to visualize what does a cyber attack look like in in time of war? Um, and you know, so I think use of this kind of uh, these mm. kinds of metaphors, you know, invokes a sort of visual imagery in the audience to, to try to. Get them to sort of uh, understand, uh, but the difficulty is that you know the problem is that it, it really I think creates a false understanding.
3: Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. Well, it does. I guess it doesn't inform us. And you know, they they use one of their uh, statements also was of the of cyber doom and. And yet, I mean, so I guess what it is, though, it's it's we 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 got used to words like you know, weapons of mass destruction, and um, you know, nuclear deterrence, all of these. A Cold War. We were used to certain terms and understanding. You know, war from a certain angle, and now all of a sudden it's a new language, and I'm sure they'll probably get better at it. In fact, here's a line from the article that you uh, you were a co-author of that I thought was so fascinating because this to me sounds like the military. The um, The main aims have been disrupting command and control capabilities, limiting communications, and altering or deleting information. Um, I mean, command and control is about as military word and term and statement as they come. And so really, all we're saying now is we're using technology uh, to help us, you know, help us uh, What do you uh, have an edge, gain an edge or an advantage in the war.
7: Right. Right. And so, you know, a lot of my research has looked at how the military itself uh, communicates internally. Hmm. Right, amongst themselves, but yeah. also to a larger public in ways that uh, try to use uh, analogies and metaphors to various other realms of society, whether it be science in the case of chaos theory and complexity theory, uh-huh. or um, in the case of um, cyber uh, weapons and cyber attacks. Um, one of the main uh, analogies and metaphors that gets used is actually uh, nuclear deterrence and weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and Cold War, um, and so one of the things that I have been interested in is how the military tries to make sense of these new technologies, right, right. So the analogies and the metaphors that they use to try to understand um, the the very tactics and strategies and technologies that they themselves are responsible for creating, uh-huh. but yet even though they 're the ones that are creating them and implementing them they still have to try to understand what it is they've created, the implications mm-hmm. of what they've created and what they're doing. And so and how
3: they uh, communicate it, I guess, right? And,
7: and how they communicate it to others. Yeah. Uh, but also, first, how they understand it and communicate it to themselves. And so, you know, the military, you know, they're humans, just like mm-hmm. all of us. And all of us use metaphors and analogies to understand the world, right? We always try to understand new things that are presented to us in the world, whether created by someone else or that we create ourselves, by reference to things we already know,
6: right? Right. Right.
7: Um, we, you know, we always have to have some kind of reference, a frame of reference. And so uh, the military does that, too. And uh, But those frames of reference that we use, you know, shape what we see in the world, um, the decisions that we make, and the actions that we, that we ultimately end up taking. And so hmm. a part of my concern has been, uh, to this point, when it comes to cyber, is the use of inappropriate and inapt sort of analogies, so analogies to weapons of mass destruction
3: mm-hmm.
7: uh, analogies to nuclear weapons, um, and then
3: annihilation
7: right, and <laughs> what ends up happening there is you get these sort of cyber doom scenarios, which uh, you know uh, people worry about, oh, cyber attacks are going to destroy all of society, um, and in part they, they have those concerns because they've been analogizing to weapons of mass destruction exactly to nuclear, nuclear weapons, bomb. Which, which do have that capability? Interesting, but yeah. cyber weapons, I argue, do not. Yeah. That doesn't mean they're not, you know, dangerous. that there aren't cyber threats, um, but if we understand them in the wrong way, if we frame them the wrong way, we use the wrong analogies to sort of frame our thinking, then we can go down the wrong path. And, and I think we've done that in terms of our fears mm-hmm. of what can happen to us. And I think when we hear people like Ash Carter using the the cyber bomb, you know, metaphor. I think it's sort of the flip side of that. Um, I think it maybe gives us too great of a sense of our own capabilities, right? Whereas the cyber doom metaphors give us maybe too much of a heightened sense of our own vulnerabilities. Cyber bombs give us too much of a sense of our own capability.
3: Exactly, we're
7: full of ourselves.
3: Doctor Sean, hang on one second. Exactly, we're going to get too cocky. Yeah. Let's call them cyber tools. Um, we'll come back more with Sean Lawson, Doctor Sean Lawson, associate professor of communications at the University of Utah. He's walking us through the the uh, some of the new devices being used at war. Um, cyber bombs um, is the term they're using. And yet there are probably better names for it. And it might even be, you know, better education if we could call them what they really are. Stick with us, folks. We'll come back, continue the discussion. On the other side, we'll be right back. everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about some of the advancing technology that is being used uh, in our efforts against ISIS. And we're also speaking about kind of the evolution of war and the evolution of our communication around war. You know, we use symbols, we use uh, terms that, that that are natural to us. And if the military is... Developing and implementing different technologies, they're probably going to be prone to use models and symbols, metaphors that are military driven, like cyber bomb. And Ash Carter, the defense secretary, told NPR a few months ago that, uh, you know, the, the United States has a, has a bomb, has a cyber bomb. And it's kind of upset the world, not upset the world, but now everyone's questioning, well, when are we going to get hit? (laughs) So joining us today is Dr. Sean, who is a communication expert, associate professor of communication at the University of Utah and specializes in uh, technology and the development of military theory and discourse, which, you know, in the the next two, three hundred years, can you imagine what war will look like 200 years from now? Will we be fighting the same types of war? Uh, he's also the author of the book "Nonlinear Science and Warfare: Chaos, Complexity, and the U.S. Military in the Information Age." Dr. Sean Lawson, welcome back, my friend.
6: Thank you
7: for having me on. It's you good bet. To talk
3: to you. This is fun. I mean, it's it, it is we're advancing, and now all of a sudden we have the cyber bomb issue that we've been talking about. But th- throughout the article, you you. Give it other names. Are these other not other names, but other maybe explanations of what they're doing? Would these be better terms? Do you think for the world and for education terms you use like cyber enabled coercion, um, Mm -hmm. cyber options, cyber operations, cyber tactics, cyber means, cyber tools?
7: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, p- part of uh, what I've been concerned with, as as I mentioned before the break, is, um, you know, some of the analogies and metaphors, symbols, models, like you said when we came back from break, that have been used to this point and some of the flaws and, and shortcomings in those models. And so I think the next step is to try to figure out, okay, well, what are some more appropriate analogies that we can use, right? Um, and so I've just returned from the um international conference on cyber conflict um, that's put on by NATO every year in uh, the little baltic country of Estonia
5: wow and
7: um uh, this was actually an issue that came up there and so um I think even a lot of um you know defense and security folks are beginning to realize even themselves that okay, the way we have sort of spoken about these things the way we've thought about these things to this point is um you know maybe a little off the mark and we need to sort of go back to the the well of existing inf- information and knowledge that we already have and look for uh better sort of correlates right better analogies that we can that yeah. we can use to shape our thinking um and so you know when we think about uh cyber capabilities right You know, a lot of these capabilities are really what would be called dual use, meaning that they're not fundamentally military. Right. Right. They're not really weapons. Um, They're uh, in the hands of the military. um, They can represent the weaponization, right, Mm -hmm. of an otherwise civilian or dual use kind of capability. Right. So. Um, you know a lot of the security flaws that the military or intelligence will end up um, exploiting um, you know as a means of getting access to ISIS computers or the computers of some other kind of adversary um, so that we can steal their information or uh, we can deny them access to their information or we can corrupt their information in some way for deception purposes or some other reason those those security flaws are the same flaws that can be found in all of our computers, all of our software, right? They're not unique in any way. Um and so, you know, and a lot of the, the the tactics that get used by the military are the same kind of tactics that will get used by um, you know, private hackers. Right. Um, act, you know, so-called hacker activists or hacktivists, uh, groups like Anonymous or criminals in some cases, right? Um, And so, you know, to analogize to bombs or especially nuclear weapons in some way, um, I think is is inappropriate. You know, it might be better to analogize to something like biological weapons, for example, which, again, are, you know, fundamentally dual use in the sense that we're talking about issues of disease, public health, uh, vaccines. Uh, you know, basic biological research, right? So one difficulty is, uh, you know, if you're going to assess, okay, well, what kind of a cyber war capability does an adversary have? It's a similar kind of problem to assessing, well, what kind of biological warfare hmm. capability?
3: Do right. They have. Vir- yeah. Virus. Yeah.
7: You know, do they have a lot of research labs? Do they have a lot of uh, capability to produce vaccines? Do they have, you know, capability to do, um, you know, genetic research, these sorts of things? But but on the other hand, having those capabilities are also just the mark of technologically advanced society, mm-hmm. right? They're not necessarily nefarious, right? So, um, you know, the cyber capabilities in terms of uh, warfare and espionage and these sorts of things present a similar kind of problem in that the the technologies, the tools, the tactics, um, in a lot of senses are fundamentally dual use. They have civilian yeah. purposes and they exist in the civilian world just like they exist in in the military well,
3: world. And Sean, is it um, it seems like too we want to be careful because, because these are also we have, you know, businesses all over the world, American businesses and to, we don't want to go militarize cyber the cyber world, and and also then attach it to the Americans, and then attach it to anything that comes over the internet. I mean, really, in a way, a lot of what you're talking about, it seems like, is the language we use, the the and the, um, the uh, analogies or the metaphors we're using. It it also it reflects who we are, and we're the leaders of this field. I'm assuming.
7: We are. We are. And, you know, part of what's interesting in in all of this is a lot of our fear about what could happen in terms of cyber attacks against us is really based on what we have done.
3: Mm -hmm.
7: Right. So, in fact, in the early days of Stuxnet uh, being sort of revealed, you saw various officials point to Stuxnet as evidence of the cyber threat against the United States. Right. Right. They would say, oh, look what happened with that. See, we've been yeah. telling you for years. That's the threat we face. Yeah,
3: we of did course, that.
7: <laughs> then we figured out later, mm, we're the ones that actually did that. Mm-hmm. Right. So a lot of our fear is kind of ironically fear of ourselves.
3: Well, the Cold you know, War was in a similar, case, similar, wasn't
7: in, it? And our own desires for what we would like to be able to do in cyberspace.
3: Yeah. Well, we, we were always afraid of being bombed because we've bombed. Right. We were always I mean, and, and we're always afraid of people coming into our country to attack us, but we've gone into countries and attacked, I mean, right. for reasons. But, yeah, it's the, right. that's such a great point, huh? We're afraid of what we know we do or right. what, what we could do or what can be done.
7: Right, and we're worried, what if other people did to us what we're doing to them hmm. or what we would like to have the capability to do to them? Again, that's not to say there aren't cyber threats. There right. are for sure. Um, but, you know, we have to, I think in the intelligence world, they would call this the, the problem of, of mirror imaging, right? Assuming that your adversary has the same capabilities, the same desires uh, that you have, right? Assuming that they're like you. Right. Um, and that's not necessarily no. always the case.
3: Yeah, that, that could be that a mistake.
7: You could in you in a, in a wrong direction.
3: What, uh, we've got about a minute left. What would you say, if you were consulting uh, Secretary Ash and his team, what would you suggest they do about the terms they're using and how they kind of frame the conversation around cyber?
7: Yeah, so I would say, first, I would say a good job in being a little more transparent and actually talking about the fact that we have these capabilities and we're using them in combat. Um, But I would say, second, that, you know, these kinds of uh, analogies and metaphors are not helpful. They provide a wrong impression in terms of the capabilities that we really do have and what those capabilities can actually achieve in terms of coercion in a mm. conflict on a battlefield. And that um, we need to be a little more honest, not only in our public communications, but internally you know, with ourselves mm. uh, about uh, the capabilities we have, how they can be used, and what we can actually achieve. Because my biggest concern is... Uh, sort of self-deception.
3: Yeah, we're we're setting up a a fake image. Right. Interesting, Dr. Sean Lawson. Thank you so much again. Uh, great work, and everybody, go check out the book um, "Nonlinear Science and Warfare: Chaos, Complexity, and the U.S. Military in the Information Age." Folks, it's a different world, isn't it? Different age, different time means different terms, different conversations. It's one reason we do the show to help you uh, stay ahead of the game. We'll take a break. We'll be right back, stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, language is always important, right? But um, in the end you gotta you gotta, I guess get it right. Um, one of the things that, as I have studied, I got a master's degree in communications and a lot of times the messages, you are the message, right? Um, so the military's out there, and, and we, we use a term like cyber bomb and it doesn't seem like a big deal, except think about how unsettling that would be if Russia was... If they were out talking about their ability to destroy people via the cyber tactics, um, it might be unsettling if you are a potential target, right? So even though you know it makes sense and it, it's something we are doing, we're using cyber tactics. You, you still have to worry about your messaging and the terms you're using, which I think is something you're seeing play out in the um, in the election with Donald Trump, aren't you? He doesn't seem to manage his communications very well. He's incredible at getting attention, but his attention is just, you know, screaming fire many times or saying something that's kind of inappropriate or is inappropriate. And then everybody starts jumping. He gets the press he needs. He moves the needle, whichever direction he needs to move it. And in many regards, I don't think the the message or the needle direction matters to him just as long as he's the one moving the needle. But Hillary Clinton does the exact same thing. This is this is why you see so many people that are about identifying the message and making sure the message is, you know, methodically almost rhythmically put out there. Now, a lot of people are sick of it. Right? They're sick of it. And that's what they're calling the political correctness of the world and we just we, we're you know, we're too worried about what we're saying or how we're saying it. Except that's, in a way, you you can hate it all you want, but in a way, it's what creates consistency. It's what creates something we can trust. It's what creates something we can trust and, and, and drive and follow. It creates following. It creates safety and structure. I mean, there's a reason why the people that are in charge of our financial markets are very careful about when they talk about the market. They're very, very careful about talking about the market because the market will react. And we need to just start thinking about it. How we what terms we use. This is another reason I think why President Obama has been very careful about calling them, um, you know, uh, Islamic terrorists. And he he wants to manage the messaging so we don't offend the 95 percent that aren't here to kill. Others don't manage those messages. And again, it seems like it's more honest, right? It seems like it's more open. But to be a leader, I think you have to be able to manage both sides of the equation. The openness, the honesty, the transparency, and the um, just, I guess, the, the patient uh carefulness being methodical prepared that's leader you got to have both sides of the equation it's not enough to just start firing you have to make sure that you're firing in the right area on the right issues and not meanwhile offending the people you're going to have to eventually negotiate with or you're going to just prolong and protract the situation It's Leadership 101. Leadership 101, managing your message. And many times, if you're not careful, you become the message. So even if your messages are true, that you're the one delivering it, like Donald Trump talking about the wall and how he loves Hispanics, that's not a good message from him. And Hillary talking about Wall Street isn't necessarily a great message for her. Sometimes, if you're not careful, you become the message. We'll be back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us.
6: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the
2: side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
2: At Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
2: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU
4: Radio. BYU Radio.
3: Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Happy hour number two of the program. This is the show where we give you the tools, the information you need to live longer, love stronger. Today we'll be talking about how to save your marriage, guys. Because you're pretty much blowing it. And according to our author, it's the husband's fault. I haven't even started, so... That's, see how bad you're blowing it? You're pre-blowing it. Not to get, not to be offensive. You, um, all of us, guys... I don't know if you know, 70% of divorce is filed by by women. Really? Yeah. Whoa. Number one cause of divorce? Marriage. (laughs) Number two cause? (laughs) The number one cause of divorce is marriage. Is marriage. Very few people that aren't married, divorcing. That's true. Check the stats. At least in a legal fashion. This is the (laughs) in-depth information you get from the show. A show that we, we're looking out for you. So, today we're going to be talking about a book called Good Husband, Great Marriage, Finding the Good Husband. We got it. You got to, it. it's not about necessarily finding it. Guys, if you're married, you got to step up. Well, what about her? I'll step up when she steps up. Yeah, what about her? Well, she'll step up when you step up. Sounds like no one's stepping. No, except away. Well, exactly. No, exactly. See? So, we're going to give you some tools, some information. Some insights as to how to be a better husband. Now again, a lot of men are gonna hate that. Don't blame me. You always blame me. But honestly, men have a higher marital satisfaction rate than women do. Men are happier in their marriages than women are, statistically. Does it help when I see that my wife
0: is visibly upset that I I go, I I, I sit next to her, I ask, you know, what's the problem, can I help? And then after we go through the whole conversation, then I ask her, did that sound genuine? Did that sound like I really cared? Did it help you? (laughs) Need a little coaching on this because. Yeah. And then she's like, were you just. I I was trying to test out some of my skills just to.
3: And, but then. So the rule is don't, don't, don't like tell her you were faking. Well, I wasn't. Well,. And did it look like I was faking? Because I was yeah. totally disinterested in what I've, you were saying. I've really tried I was really trying. to wanted Did I seem interested? Yeah, that'll be that'll be the end of your marriage. It's okay. You have to know. You have to pick your battles.
0: Mm-hmm. You have to know when to toss in a little humor. Yeah. When to do the dishes? Oh yeah. Or you could just do do them all the time. I usually walk out there, and if there's some there, I I clean them
3: real quick. Yeah. Move See, on. You're, to life. you're a good husband. See. You're good. What are you gonna do? That's why we want you to influence little Benny here, little, little Wazdo, little Benny. So we'll be talking about uh, the this uh, interesting idea about men. Come on, let's pick up our games. Also, um, we will of course be talking about a lot of other stuff, including a contest out of Detroit for blindfolded lawn mowing. Mm. Seems problematic. We actually have video. One of the things we're going to be doing on the show from here on till eternity, through eternity. And beyond. We're going to be sharing more video on the radio show.
1: It seems like radio has really been behind in that area. I know.
3: Everything else is booming with video but radio. Yeah. So we are going to we, – we have a lot of video we never show you but we will be showing it and you will be amazed at the color and brightness it adds to the show. And we have some really great video we'll be playing about the lawn mowing contest. But first, let's get to the brightest thing in the room. Terry South and the headlines for the day. Terry, what's up? Thanks, Matt.
0: If President Obama wants to successfully encourage senator bernie sanders to support hillary clinton in today's meeting at the white house he's going to have to word his pitch very carefully as we talked about political reports sanders reports our supporters are already bristling at the suggestion that obama might try to push sanders to end the fight prematurely in their meeting today the president is not senator sanders's boss but we've got to get this straight here nina turner a former ohio state senator and sanders supporter she was talking with politico she says there's respect uh, there's respect, that's for the commander-in-chief, but Senator Sanders is duly elected and he'll make his own decisions. Strategists contend Obama will have to use flattery rather than force. They don't want to see him shoved to the side, one Democratic strategist tells Politico. See, back to communication skills. Flattery, yes. not force. Bernie Sanders knows, Yeah, but he's not getting out. No. Donald Trump says he has no reason to raise $1 billion for his campaign. Previously, the presumptive uh, Republican presidential nominee can't wait till that's gone. Yeah. That's a long title for the man. I uh, said in an interview with Bloomberg Politics that he, he said before that he needed a billion dollars, but he told Bloomberg yesterday that he doesn't think he needs to uh, raise even or commit. He refused to commit to raise even a half a billion to run well, on. It's because he can't. No, he's saying that he he, can't. D- he gets free publicity. Yeah, he now, still he goes, can't. He... I walk up to a microphone anywhere in this country. I'm live on like five TV networks. Why do I need all this money? Right. Right now, other people like yourself are saying he doesn't have the, he doesn't have the ability to And that much I money. think
3: the media is onto him now. So. Some
0: are saying that he's going to run out of money, and it'll be interesting to see him go hat in hand mm-hmm. to try to get funds to keep his campaign alive. Yes, so we'll see how Scary. all this works. Uh, A new Gallup poll found that 75% of American adults are giving the presidential election quite a lot of thought. Wow. When Gallup asked the same question at the same time of year in 2000 and 2004, interest in the presidential race was substantially lower. These new results are on par with 2008, which makes a lot of sense because right now the cable news channels, where a lot of people hear and get kind of exposure to all this information, are enjoying their highest sustained levels of viewership since
3: 2008. You know what? That's uh, that's exciting. And if it would just translate to voting. But it's interesting cuz Hillary's numbers were down about 7 million mm-hmm. from Obama's 08 numbers, they which were. is the big metric. Okay. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And finally, yeah.
0: There's something every science fiction reader knows to fear. Uh-oh. The robot rebellion.
8: Oh boy. Here when we go. When
0: artificial intelligence will learn how to override and outsmart its human commanders.
8: Alert nerd.
0: Now scientists at Google are working to develop a quote-unquote kill switch <laughs> to prevent ai from figuring out that they got the short end of no, the deal great idea workers with uh rec- working with researchers at oxford university google's ai division uh-huh. called deep mind deep mind plans to ensure that the humans will always remain in charge as long as you can get to the kill switch. You have to get to the – I think they're underestimating. Yeah. AI will figure out a way to block the kill switch and then we won't be able to get how to it. How many
3: people do you know that can't even like set their VCR clock or whatever or even understand which – they have five remotes because they don't know how to create a universal remote. Mm-hmm. Yet we think we're going to be able to turn off our robot. Yeah. Not going to happen. I mean but the, you see the problem. Microsoft built
0: a – they call it a chat bot, sort of an automatic – learning type program chat bot they had it watch twitter Mm -hmm. to kind of learn how to interact with humans and it turned into a racist really misogynistic (laughs) just bad character on twitter is is the is the bot running for president no they turned that off okay they went this was a bad idea sorry and (laughs) then we all have you know if you have a smartphone you probably have some sort of a little assistant on an iphone you push the button talk to siri why would you? And Siri doesn't work. No. Siri, Siri, I've been having problems having her. just has got an attitude. A, a thirty-second timer. She doesn't do it.
3: Why? Why? Yeah, Why would we train up our chatbot yes. on Twitter I don't know. to be a human? You think? You think the problem would have been? Uh,
0: you know, they would have seen it before. That right. Twitter may not be the best source for human interaction examples for at the highest level. A learning chatbot who was just trying to. They, what they wanted to do is have this experiment, and you, you would, you could mesh, message this account and say hi, so and so, and they would talk to you. But they had to learn from something, so they used this database of Twitter to be able to pull the information out. Yeah. and then it just turned into uh. this racist monster
3: yeah it's almost like i don't know there had to have been anything else a lot of flags along the way that they should just know. have them listen to this show this show right. i think is
0: heaven it on would, earth it would say top of the morning top and of the morning to you who
3: stole my lucky charms and they're magically delicious yeah it'd be a lot of that no we don't i don't ever use those words i say top of the morning to you yeah but they're inferred that's the thing yeah, yeah. well and of course my little leprechaun outfit
1: <laughs> that doesn't
3: hurt if only everybody else could see me. I know. If they could see me now. Hey, uh, I'm worried about volunteer uh, volunteers in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Okay. So mm-hmm. Detroit apparently has a volunteer park grass cutting group, a band, a gang. There's public funding issues in Detroit. Yeah. So they have what's called the Detroit Mower Gang. So people are stepping up to keep their neighborhoods clean. Yeah and they volunteer and and they help to maintain the parks and playgrounds but over uh, i guess about in the last in the last week they they've decided to um, they've made it more exciting cuz nothing's more monotonous than mowing just lawns. mowing yeah especially mowing like a big ball field so the detroit news reports that the detroit mower gang held a blindfolded mowing olympics on wednesday while trimming hammerberg field on the west side the contest came after they wanted to determine who could drive a riding mower the straightest without seeing. This is actual video uh, from the mowing contest. Interesting. So they blindfolded the mowers, Okay. and two of the six contestants just set out, uh, and they mowed an X in the grass. <laughs> Holy cow. That's tall and, grass. Uh, man, did you see that all <laughs> Uh, yeah, that is some tall grass. <laughs> and and uh, they, they crossed paths, but they didn't run into each other. But they, they ended up mowing um, and, and having the contest on a playground, a football field, and a baseball diamond. Two other mowers oh. mowed. Uh, wow. Is that a cow? Yeah, but I hope they're not getting harmed. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is cool. Jim uh, Kaufman went crooked, but not as crooked as the others, so he won first place.
6: <laughs>
3: okay. Well, Is that a pig? Well, z- wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's some good video. Um, There's some things you just don't think you ought to probably. A donkey. It's a donkey? Yeah. Man. This must be they're mowing the zoo. Are they mowing at the zoo? I, or the farm? Is there an adjacent farm? <laughs> Holy cow. That's some contest, though. Yeah. Uh, they, they also, Detroit, in order to raise money, they're thinking in the um, the Winter Olympics, they're going to do a blindfolded snow blowing contest. Ooh. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah. snow plowing contest. Well, okay. Which I think could be super fun. Also- um, Just tell everyone to keep their cars off the road. Yeah. Just don't park on the road those days. The volunteers from the Detroit uh, Hedge Trimmers Gang, hmm. they are also going to be sponsoring their own- um their own event yet to be determined. Mm. Blind hedge trimming. Hmm. I, By the way, the winner? Yeah. One arm Jim Kaufman.
0: Just seems problematic. Blindfold, power when, tools. When did
1: he
3: lose his arm? It was recently, he said. Yeah? Yeah. It was on the job, but. He didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't want to talk about it as his bloody
0: stump was right there. He, he took the sticker off that says don't stick your hand under here when the blade is rotating.
3: And then, of course, you do. Yeah, I mean, I get the fact that there's not money in the coffers, but, I mean, this was for fun. But it sounds like they they upset a lot of animals. It sounded like. It. And a variety, too. Yeah. yeah. They I destroyed a
1: habitat.
3: I didn't know. Yeah,
0: they're destroying. Just think of how overgrown the area would have been with yeah. donkeys and. And rooting pigs. Did you hear? I think that oh, was a yeah. pig that, that was, was rooting. That was a rooting pig.
3: There was an elephant or two.
1: Wow. There was a hippo in there. Was I that a hippo? That, yeah. Wow. You hippo.
3: know, By the way, a lot of people don't know this, but hippos are really the most dangerous animal in Africa.
1: And apparently in Detroit, too.
3: Yeah. Well, the most dangerous thing in Detroit are the blindfolded mowers. That's true. We read before how hippos are very dangerous
0: in Colombia. Yeah. Because the drug cartels, they wanted Grace to have like, their own zoo. And then once they, get got, they were arrested, the hippos broke free and started roaming the countryside. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe that heavens. happens in
3: Detroit, too. I don't know. Yeah. That was crazy. I've never this video thing we're doing, though. I think is important. You know, like a think, public service. Yeah, we add it just adds more. I think color mm. to the story. But I mean, I I, mean, I, I do have questions. This is a audio medium. You're you're yeah. you're wanting to do a visual mm-hmm. component to the show. Yeah. We brought that... Don brought up that exact same point. Okay. A lot of people that have been in radio a long time, mm. they bring up that point. Yeah. But we shot it down. Because <laughs> we're like, who doesn't love video? <laughs> doesn't it's love a watching? new age. Like, yeah. we got to embrace it. Are you not noticing? All of the social media now, they're all... They all have some video form. We're
1: just helping radio catch up.
3: Right. Why can't you? Like right there, the visuals of the elephant... Almost getting
1: If you killed. saw how the donkey interacted with the mower, incredible.
3: <laughs> Donkeys hate mowers. I mean, I remember that from childhood. I remember my donkey. <laughs> Anywho, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're talking marriage, and we, we may have the fix. How you fix your marriage, folks, it might be up to you guys, husbands. Good husband, great marriage, finding the good husband in the man you married. That's up next. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. And uh, we're we're going to talk about I think I think a really important subject, and it's something I deal with a lot in my own practice coaching uh, couples in their communication and their conflict resolution. Many, many, many times, I will have in fact uh, the majority of the time when I have one person come to my office to talk about their marriage, it's the woman, it's the female saying, "Ah, oh, he doesn't care, he doesn't get it," and. So I've been dealing with this issue a lot, and then um, I found a book years ago that um, it, it you know seemed like it was touching the third rail of marriage issues. <laughs> it's called "Good Husband, Great Marriage: Finding the Good Husband in the Man You Married," and um, I, I think in the end it's it's a good lesson for all of us um, because I'm I'm wondering if if we don't want to necessarily just blame the man for being the problem in a, a lot of the marriage issues. But we can definitely step up a whole lot more. I think that could never be more true than the mere fact that that about, I think, 70% of divorces are filed by women. And guys, we're not that bad. We just got to get in and get real and and, and get into it. And to talk to us about their book, Robert and Jane Alter are on the phone with us. Uh, Their name of the book, again, Good Husband, Great Marriage, Finding the Good Husband in the Man You Married, and we appreciate Robert and Jane being with us. Thank you so much for your, your time.
8: Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you, Matt.
3: And what I think is wonderful as a couple, you, you, uh, Robert, are a practicing psychotherapist um, and uh, Jane, a couples therapist. You, you, you've been at this a long time, and yet you come out and I love very directly tackle the idea that guys, you got to get your head in the game.
8: Yeah, it came. It took me a number of years as a therapist um, and and as a husband to realize that I'm sitting down in my office um, with these couples and I'm looking at the woman and what I'm seeing is just this person who is reaching out and just trying to have this decent relationship with this guy who's sitting in, in the other chair. And in some ways, he just doesn't know how to do it. Yeah, He just doesn't know how to really connect with that particular person or connect with a woman who is his wife. So, um I the book is really a a teaching uh, kind of an instruction man, manual uh, how to connect with your wife in a marriage. And I mean
3: is it that we don't know how to do it is what do you think Jane is it is it men don't know how to do it is it just that it's foreign to us is it we've never been taught this what do you think it is that has debilitated so many of us?
6: Well, I do actually think that part of it is uh, just a lack of knowledge um, it's it hasn't been taught, and in particular, men haven't had the responsibility for taking care of the health relationships mm. that's not one of their you know job descriptions in life, so they I think even have less sense of how to do it and also, I think there's a bit of sort of male entitlement you know um, yeah. to feeling like they 're the boss, so maybe they don 't think that uh, you know they need to know more than uh, what it is that they they want and there here's, yeah here's, go ahead
8: here 's the, here's the joke in a way. We men actually do know how to relate to a woman in the courting period right when we want them. All, what we know is i I should be basically being in good energy and being just a good guy. And connected with her and talking with her and interested in her and holding her hand, all these great ways of connection. We know that in the courting period. The problem is that once we've courted them and won them and we've got them, we tend to forget all Hmm. that. Yeah.
3: I mean, it it makes sense. We're the life of the party, right? We've got all the funny jokes. We have all the energy in the world. And then that's just, I guess, to woo her, to win her. And then when we've won her, I guess we get fat and happy.
8: Right. What I, my understanding of my marriage now is that I'm I'm still courting her, and mm-hmm. I'll be courting her every day of my life, and that's and that feels good to both of us.
6: Yeah, I think that's a very good understanding.
3: And you need to keep that up because part of that, it seems like I always use the metaphor or the analogy of like a lion. A lion with his pride might be you know flexing and puffing up, looking big when he has to win of battle or, you know, maintain his position. But once everything's safe, he just might roll over on his back and roll around in the dust. And he's not as attractive. But uh, you're saying we need to keep we need to keep on our game. And we don't have to it's not like we can't relax. But it it is that we need to keep making it a priority.
8: Yeah. And I love that phrase on our game, because when you talk to men, it really does help to speak their language, yeah. like the sports language. And what I tell men is that Marriage, especially if there's children who are always watching, that marriage is a big league game you got into. You're playing a particular position, and here's how to play that position.
3: Hmm. I love it. And it's fun to me that you guys uh, have been able to do this together because you're, a lot of times you have the, the kind of the dichotomy, the he said, she said – He's kind of less attentive, so she wants to bring it up and talk about it. He calls her a nag, oh, you sound like my mother, and then then it just turns into that typical battle. Do do, do, do you guys talk this through, and you have a pretty good insight as counselors together?
6: Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things... that Robert often says, which I like, is that not only was I uh, the major editor of his book, but I have been the major editor of him huh. as a man and as a person. And, uh, you know, we think we base our, a lot of our couples therapy on things that we've learned to do together, to talk things through and to let each person be heard and also the idea of the man needing to make some changes that he might not be comfortable with. That's. I'm a,
8: typical, I'm a typical man, too. I would much rather be shooting baskets out in the driveway or cleaning up the garage than talking about the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I've learned is if I behave in certain ways to her, that, that in ways that she's not going to come to me and say, Robert, we have to talk about this, that's my best shot at not having to talk about it. Yeah. Just behave well.
3: Yeah. Yeah, and improve. And a lot of it seems like a lot of people think you just have to accept me as I am. I shouldn't have to change. What do you, yeah. What's your take to that?
8: In um, a long-term I heard, relationship. I heard a, a spiritual teacher say once that um, if you're waiting for unconditional love, many galaxies will have uh, changed by then. <laughs> um, it really, it's really not uh, one of the deals in marriage. Is a, uh, some, somebody once said, after marriage, all things change, and one of them better be you. Mm. So what we're talking about is two people who are facing each other every day and seeing things about the other, and some things I love, and some, some things I want you just never to get rid of, and there are some things I'd like you to change. And that's one of the great uses of marriage, too. It's like you have somebody a kind of a mirror, that is looking back at you and saying these are some of the things that you you probably want to be working on. Yeah.
3: I think that's important because in the end um we, we want to become we have to become something together that's healthy and productive and I may bring in certain traits and problems my spouse may bring in traits and issues but we really want to be able to conquer and and become something new together and that won't happen unless we're both willing to change.
6: Right and Plus, I think what happens is that we, um, in that transformation that each person is going through because of the kind of the crucible of the relationship, which is, you know, really making you change. If you want it to be a good relationship, you then bring that new you, um, that better, improved version of you. I mean, you're still you, as you say, right? But you bring a better that, you. Out into yes, a better you, out into the world, so everything and everyone you meet meets somebody who just has a lot more to offer
3: is where does the ego come into this? Um, one of the things I find uh, a little harder i mean i everyone has ego, but I found that uh, um the male ego, this need to kind of uh save face and kind of maintain my machismo or whatever it, I need to protect my. Mm-hmm. Myself, and I found that many times that ends up becoming a burden. Where we're not able to apologize, sometimes we're not able to admit mistake.
8: Right, absolutely. I think that's tr- I think that's true. What I what I say to men about their ego is, um, men, uh, one way of thinking about the ego is it's just you just want to be proud of yourself. You just want to think well of yourself. And that's that's ego, and you want others to think well of you. Well, if you want to think well of yourself, I have a way: become a great husband and a great father. Mm. And so then your then your ego is fine. You can, you can stand with your puffed up chest yeah. and feel wonderful about yourself, and and everybody who knows you will, will will see it.
3: And and you've earned it, right? And it's yours. It's not yes. it's not fake anymore. You don't have to keep pretending.
8: Exactly, it's not a show. It's just now this this is really you and your sons are looking at it and your daughters are looking at it and their whole personalities are being formed by the kind of man that you are.
3: Man, good stuff. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Robert and Jane Alter. They're the authors of the book, Good Husband, Great Marriage, Finding the Good Husband in The Man You Married. And when we come back, we're going to get into some of their content from the book. Uh, They have 50 chapters in the book, folks, and we're, we're not going to hit them all, of course, just probably half of them. No, we're going to get into a few of them and find out what are some of the tricks of the trade? To A, be a good husband, be a better husband, um, and and also maybe some of the coaching skills that wives may need to, to coach them along. Interesting stuff, folks. Time to pick up our game and be better husbands. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back friends to the Matt Townsend show. Joining us on the phone are Robert and Jane Alter, the authors of Good Husband Great Marriage, Finding the Good Husband in the Man You Married and uh, they're walking us through the lessons that we need as men and as wives um, to make sure we're stepping up in our marriage and you folks, I'm telling you I can't it drives me crazy how many times I've had a wife come in and she's done she's done. She's tried everything she can, and the husband is like, what? It is not this bad. It's not that bad. Folks, the ladies, they're struggling, and they'll struggle faster, and they'll struggle longer if it's not working. So pay attention. And today we are going to learn more from the alters from some of the chapters in their book. Robert and Jane Alter, welcome back to the show.
6: Thank you thank you
3: matt love um love the book love the topic um a lot of the a lot of your simple the chapters are very simple headings um but I think just they're profound right like very first chapter is hey, you're in a relationship um <laughs> i mean that is like yeah. so, it's that's like so and that's duh it's yeah, like duh. duh
6: you're in a relationship, and like what you just said a moment ago, Matt, I think it's important for the man to believe his wife. Yeah. You know, that. I believe what she's saying. Yeah, believe what she's saying. Um, it, she keeps saying it over and over and over again. It's not because she's trying to make you bad. It's not mm-hmm. because she's not, she's saying you're not a good person. It's because something isn't working. And the sooner you can sort of believe it and just kind of say, okay, let me see. What's, what is this about? What, what can I do about it? Mm. You know, take that, attitude and that approach
3: yeah in fact use something that might come natural to you like wanting to fix it but first find out what it is right you know we That's always that, we're always yeah, fixing it instead is, of
8: I'm, so, I'm sorry matt go yeah ahead. no
3: i was just going to say we're always fixing it instead of understanding it and you're saying we should understand it and then believe it believe it's coming from a good place she's not your competitor right um, and then do what you can what, what were you going to say robert
8: I was going to say that the thing that men need to understand primarily, and I th- I don't think it's something that is quite obvious, but we don't quite get it, is that if you're married to a woman, you married somebody who thrives on connection. Mm. Her her very sense of self and her sense of well-being grow out of connection. She's um, biologically and psychologically and emotionally built for connection. So all we men really have to do. Is learn the various ways of uh, connecting as husbands with our wives, and that's it. That's the game.
3: That's the game, huh? That's
8: that's the game. Just learn how to connect with her. And Simple. It, I mean, it yeah. really
3: it, it yeah. is. Except it's so hard, um, yes. isn't it? Because two, we think we should be able to connect without adjusting.
8: Right. Right. But right. you've but got to adjust it, because nothing in us, nothing as men. There's nothing in our training, at least in my training, I grew up in the 1950s and 1960s, there was nothing in my training about connecting with anybody. Right,
3: right. And
8: so so Jane basically had to teach me how to connect with her. Like, don't talk to me in that kind of voice. That doesn't really connect well with me. But if you speak to me in gentle, kind, nice tones, I feel connected with you when you talk to me like that. Mm.
3: And it really seems like... um... The tone, for example, is something is it's so subtle and simple, and like you're saying, it might be something that maybe a female is is more wired to pick up. I mean, I, I have a belief that um, like my wife will play with our grandbaby and intuitively sense stuff that I'm not picking up, and right. and can can calm her in ways that. I have yet to be able to master. And I thought it was because she just had magical, mystical powers of femininity.
6: Mm-hmm.
8: But it, what it
3: might be is she's a connector.
8: Well, actually, she does have magical, mm-hmm. mystical powers of femininity. And one of those powers is the knowing how to be a connector. Mm-hmm. So yeah. as, as husbands, if we can stop seeing our wives as um, enemies or she who is trying to nag us to death or control us, But as teachers of connection, then all I have to do basically is learn what she's telling me about connection. Hmm. That's – it
3: seems fairly um, simple yet. I mean I think it really is if we can just see that she's really coming from a good place. Uh, Jane, talk to us about – another difference between men and women that I hear all day long and everyone out there in listener land hears is just the differences about um, sex and drive and – and what it means to each other. What Talk to us, just about, for, deal with the issue that most couples struggle with, male-female desire and, and sex.
6: Yeah, well, I think, I think that it, in many ways is what we've been talking about so far. With connection. Is, yeah, that it's a matter of connection. And one of the things that we say in the book is that for women you know, not always, this is a generality, but it's usually more true for women that it's what's going on all day long. It's what's been going on all week long. It's the way that you've been connecting or not connecting with each other that also fuels desire or the lack of it. And the other thing is that, you know, women and men are different. So I think for some men, it's a question of learning what is it that turns my wife on you know what gets her to the point where she feels desire if that's not what's coming up first for her is right. the desire one of
8: one of the moves uh... that, that uh... Is at the end of every chapter i give the men something to do that relates to the subject of that chapter yeah. and in the chapter called her sexuality uh... here's the move uh... be nice as pie to your wife from now on in your marriage sweet as honey considerate attentive supportive, kind, in the way you talk with her, in the way you are with her. Always show your love and respect for her. It's all foreplay, man.
6: Hmm.
3: No, that's so cool. And that's, it's so funny because the guys would be like, no, that's not it. Not yeah, even close, it, Robert. It, exactly. But that's yeah. totally it, yeah. isn't it?
8: Yeah, yeah. the fore, the foreplay starts Monday. If you want to right. have wonderful sex on a Friday or Saturday night with your wife, Start the foreplay Monday morning and love and love and
3: soft and and the words you use are these are chapters show gentleness discipline uh just affection attention talk right i mean it's it is basic, but it, a really I think um powerful point about it is how much our mood plays into this right our just our our we're irritable, we' are ornery. And guys might end up being reactive and escalating the game. What do we do about all the moodiness stuff?
8: Um, the discipline there, as, as a man, is the discipline I practice that I have my moods. I mean, I, I get irritable, I get moody, I get uh, irritated inside. Um, the the discipline, and, and I think of discipline as a, a part of manliness, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, a, man, a true man is a very disciplined man. Um, My discipline with Jane is to, as much as possible, keep my bad mood inside me and not let it out outside me as something that I'm going to make her her moment uncomfortable. Mm.
3: Don't make her pay.
8: So if I'm in a bad mood, then the best thing to do with it is go to her and say, hey, honey, I'm in a really bad mood today. I probably won't be able to talk to you for about three hours, but I'll see you at lunch. (laughs)
3: Let's do lunch. (laughs) Let me go work it out of my system. That's powerful.
8: hurt you or scare you with my bad mood by uh, uh, talking sharply to you. Uh-huh.
3: Um, another issue is power play and kind of this power battle. One of your chapters, Chapter 41, who's the boss? What? Talk to us about what we learned there. Uh, go ahead, Jane.
6: Yeah, well, I think that, um, as I was saying earlier, uh, a lot of times men come to a relationship with the idea of that they are the boss mm-hmm. um, and um, uh... you know of course that's not going to work at all maybe getting rid of the whole idea that there is a boss you know nobody is the boss You know, it's like kids often say when they're little, I'm the boss of myself. You know, be the boss of yourself. Take responsibility for how you are, Mm. how you're being, what you're putting out, not just what you're receiving. And then you can have a relationship that's equal. And I think it's really, really important for women to feel strong in a relationship and to feel respected in a relationship. And that opens them up to... Wanting to give more to that relationship. Yeah.
8: What I what I tell couples um, is that when you got married, it wasn't just the two of you that got married. There was a third party involved, and the other thing that's getting that you're marrying is the truth. You're marrying wisdom. You're marrying uh, how to how to live life well on this earth, and so that's the boss. It's so true. the the two, the two of you are in a state of kind of obedience to. The truth of how life is supposed to be lived and how marriage is supposed to be, so that that makes marriage kind of a spiritual thing
3: oh yeah and and the neat thing too, I guess there's a higher order right it's so it 's not my way or your way it 's not my interpretation or your interpretation. sometimes there is some truth at play
8: absolutely there there is a way i believe there is a way to live a there is a way for me to Treat my wife, and there's a lot of ways that I'm not supposed to treat her. There, there is right and wrong on this earth, and I'm supposed to practice doing it right. Hmm. There That's was a really. Me. There
3: was a we we had an interesting um, guest, Lisa Miller. I don't know if you know her, out of Columbia, that talked about spirituality and a lot of the latest research on spirituality and parenting. And it seems like spirituality, not necessarily religiosity, not like some mm. you know, not some creed. Belief, but um, it could be a, a belief in the creed as well of a, of a religion. But a connection to a higher power is such a healing tool um, in parenting relationships. How, how do you see it playing out in marriage relationships?
6: Well, I think it's just as important in, in a marriage. Um, I think the idea of spirituality that you're referring to, Matt, is the fact that within each one of us, There is that same place of love and wisdom and joy Mm. and, you know, um, generosity, all those beautiful virtues. We all have them inside, and that's the place that we're all on this, perhaps, journey of being on the earth together together learning how to come from that place, as opposed to some of the more wounded places that everyone carries inside of them. For whatever happened to them when they were kids or whenever, um, you know, we're all wounded. And so we all come from that p- wounded place sometimes. Yeah. But we want to be with each other in in a different place, and we can help each other get to that place.
3: That's And that's a beautiful... Goal right to to help heal whatever we need to heal from our past together, and yet re- revere honor you. You actually your one of your final chapters is reverence. Um, yeah,
6: my my yeah. belief is
8: that um, when we when we men finally get to uh, the heart of our hearts, right, right right down to the bottom of who we really are, and when when we look at our wives, we we look at her and we treat her with a kind of reverence. So. Um, life uh, marriage is a is the spiritual working out or, or relationship between what I sometimes call the god and the goddess, and mm. the two of us are just trying to uh, live our lives like that and that's the way I see jane. I, I do see her as a kind of goddess who, by some great good fortune, walked into my life way, way back and um, in in many ways saved me mm. in many ways saved me. yeah.
3: No that's in fact the word we uh you know in the Bible, the word help meet
8: yes, help mate,
3: means, yeah means or it means equal to save
8: uh-huh really yeah, uh-huh.
3: so Adam and Eve were given to each other, and they were equal to save each other, uh oh. which is isn't that powerful i, I so yeah. here and that's really what we do right if we if we do it in reverence, if we do it out of like you were saying our healthiest self versus our our you know our hurt self mm. we can we can yeah. actually heal help heal and be there. I mean, and it's it's never a cakewalk, but it's it could be pretty sweet.
8: It's not a cakewalk, but you're holding hands while you while you're walking it. So That's uh, right. the walking is a lot more fun and uh, uh, easier to do. Yeah,
3: no, true. Well, we appreciate you both. Um, it's a it's a wonderful book. Good husband, great marriage. Robert Mark Alter and then uh, Jane Alter contributed as well and uh, helped edit it. We appreciate both of you for your. Uh, for your spirit and just for the lessons. Thank you so much for being with us.
6: Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. We appreciate uh, your wisdom.
3: Thank you. Thank you both. Great stuff. Um, Folks, it's important. Can't get around it. And if you can bring a little spirit into it, I promise it'll take you to a whole new game. We'll take a break. Come back, do a little Coach's Corner for you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us.
0: I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach.
3: Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. What a great uh, interview with uh, Robert and Jane Alter. Marriage is hard, right? And it's, it's even harder just with the typical issues of life. A spouse maybe that is sick, uh, somebody that has lost their job or has mental health issues. There's so many different problems that can come up. Uh, So am I just supposed to stick it out and stay with somebody that doesn't get me? I hear that all the time. And I don't know, but what will you become? And if you do stick it out... And what will you become if you don't? I I think our assumption is, well, my life would be so much better without it. But many times I think my, my wife's differences, her challenges and her tendencies force me to become a better person. They force me to become the change. And I understand that that doesn't always bring happiness today, but it brings change, growth over time. So maybe there is a benefit to sticking in it a little longer, and there would be even a greater benefit if my partner would get the fact, too, that they need to change, right? I mean, I have clients that have been living in a one-sided marriage for years, and their spouse does not seem to get it. They think, "Ah, she's lucky. I am the greatest man in the world. And so I sit there and I worry because a guy says, no, seriously, you are so lucky to have me. (laughs) Yeah. It may not. There's a little video of a marriage fight. Uh, It may not not be what you think it is. And you can keep blowing smoke that you're just a saint. But the reality is everyone's got issues. And if, if we can't get real with each other, then we're probably going to have to, we're going to become something a lot less than we can become as humans. We're going to fall apart. So there are maybe some ways to motivate your spouse. You don't have to cross the line. You don't have to use ultimatums. Um, You don't have to beat them up if you need to see some change. But one of the things you might want to do is, is find a way to feel love for your partner before you bring up an issue. Most of the time, i found that when we're bringing up our issues with our spouse, we're not bringing up the issue out of love. And why this is so critical is because if I'm feeling anger, if I'm feeling frustrated, if I feel like you're taking advantage of me, then I will approach the conversation through that paradigm, through that way of thinking. And when I do that, my tone's going to be totally off. If I have compassion for my partner who maybe doesn't know how to communicate very well, and I feel love, and I feel an appreciation for them, if I can feel that when I go into the conversation, it might help me actually position our discussion better versus if I'm going into the discussion out of judgment. So be careful. Watch out for how you approach and the tone you approach with. Also make sure that you find the um, on switch that's inside your partner. We need to get into people deeply first and find out— what does motivate them? There are things that motivate your partner, and there are things that motivate your partner to be a better partner to you. You've seen it at times. So go in and actually pay attention to what they are telling you that, that is a driver. Pay attention to when they are happiest and most connected to you, right? It might be when you're sitting on the couch watching a football game, even though you hate football, but you notice they're so much more into you, or they're not into you, but they're at least connected in a way their way we got to remember the on switch might be on in inside our partners we need to go find it in there just a couple of ideas folks to help you motivate your partner find the good let's do it let's work better on our marriages guys pick it up do your part come on it's all we got we'll take a break we'll be right back more fun next hour this is the matt townsend show
6: This is the Matt Townsend
0: Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
2: Follow
0: Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 855 chat BYU.
2: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr.
0: Matt Townsend
3: now. on BYU Radio.
4: BYU Radio.
3: Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Your coach, your guide on the side. Happy jerky day. And of course, Donald Duck Day. <laughs> Ben, what's he saying? Um, he
1: is saying, "I do not want to wake up. I do not want to go to work. It is too early."
3: <laughs> that is not what he said. I didn't get that. I didn't it, get that. He's actually speaking German. So, I, oh, it's I, German yeah. duck. That could
0: totally pass for German too. German yeah, duck, absolutely. Yeah,
3: isn't Germany where they have the duck contest where you? That was in Spain. Ah. That was a good contest. The duck chucking contest. Yeah. How much chuck could you chuck a duck if a chuck duck could chuck duck? Yes. That's my favorite nursery rhyme. That's how it goes. Hey, uh, we'll be talking about, uh, obviously, Donald Duck Day, Jerky Day, Beef Jerky Day. This is the day that you you know, you dry out meat, salt it appropriately, and then you put it in Terry's car to warm up during the show. On it's the actually way my home. desk. Is it? And then you, yeah, just, so you drive home. And it's air-conditioned at the moment. It's nice. So that's what he has every day after after the show. Uh, by the way, great uh, jerky. You can have kangaroo jerky Ooh. all the way to alligator jerky. Florida may want to think about that. I know. They're having a lot of problems They're with alligators. They're having a lot of problems with alligators. So uh, we're going to be talking about that stuff, but also we got to get to Chris Brown, who um, is going to talk to us about some research he's been working on with kindergartners. Apparently, they may not be getting as much you know, free time, recess time as they need. I think we're stressing our kids out. A little bit. And so we'll, we'll we'll get to that and the benefit of, you know, a little play time and how it helps the ABCs and our learning abilities. So we'll go. We'll be there. We'll also be visiting our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. But first... Let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's up around the country?
0: Thanks, Matt. Several sources close to Senator Elizabeth Warren have informed n- several different uh, sources that she plans on endorsing presumptive Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton. I know this is a shocking wow. surprise. She is allegedly not interested in being Clinton's running mate at this moment, but has not ruled out the possibility completely. Advisors to Warren have reportedly also been in touch with Clinton's campaign and have been talking more in recent weeks. Apparently, she's going to deliver a speech in the next couple days where she will continue her ripping of Donald Trump that she's been doing on Twitter, (laughs) if you want to follow her there. In Bloomberg Politics, an interview with Trump What? Campaign staffers express concern over how Trump will announce his vice presidential selection. Trump's most consequential decision between now and the Republican National Convention that starts in July in Cleveland is selecting his running mate. Amid all the nervousness from Republican political veterans that his speeches are too spontaneous, he vowed to show discipline in the announcement of his vice presidential pick. The campaign has privately discussed making an announcement as soon as this month to deflect from the controversy surrounding Trump University, and some advisors have worried that Trump may decide on his own to post the announcement on Twitter one night without any warning. I think we have video of
3: him making an announcement. Okay, go ahead.
0: (coughs) Mm, Could be. Is that it? Trump in the past has said he would like to announce his pick in, quote, the old-fashioned way
3: at the convention.
0: The old-fashioned
3: way. Donkeys are Democrats. Democrats. Republicans are elephants. Elephants. That's a whole different ballgame. There we go.
0: Uh,
3: He's going to do it at the convention, old-fashioned way.
0: Now, his campaign is thinking of doing it sooner to kind of get people off the Trump University story. To distract. Trump may just go, eh, and throw it out on Twitter because he does that every night. I've decided... And, but the idea is the, the party wants it at the convention because then you get all the media attention and it's a kind of a big push and, and all yeah. of a sudden you have all this positive energy and you push your candidate Has out. Has the
3: party learned yet that it's really not about the party? No. They still think that they have some
0: sort of control over this. As soon as they learn, they'll get it. Uh, the emails for Hillary Clinton yeah. and the investigation involved. Was that still going on? It will take about 75 years to fully complete and release the email sent by Hillary Clinton and three of her top aides during the tenure in the Obama administration, the State Department said this week in response to a Freedom of Information Act filing that requested all the records. Why would it, why
3: would it take 75 years?
0: It says given the department's current uh, Freedom of Information Act workload, the, meaning there's more than one group of people asking for more than one set of documents... Uh, and the complexity of these documents, it can take a process of about 500 pages a month is how they can, how many they can get through. These
3: these must be, some of these must be, uh,
0: top secret. The agency calculated this number, bringing the final deadline to somewhere around 2091. Well, it seems like things will be over by then.
3: (laughs) Maybe that's the point. Oh, brother. I have a feeling the judge won't like
0: that. No. We'll see what happens there. And finally, an architecture student has designed a creative but simple desktop screen that folds down to act like a pillow so you can sleep at your desk. Hallelujah.
8: Hallelujah. Yes.
3: Yes.
0: It's called, the screen Uh is called For the Rest may want to work on the name it acts as a partition between workers mm-hmm. within a few seconds it is rotated flipped down and becomes a place to rest your head the padded center made of felt helps block out noise uh. when you lay your head on is it, it waterproof uh probably because you have to drool right yeah i don't have to but i choose to there's a diagram of just showing matt here so he oh, can see how, my how it heavens. works
3: pathetic If you're using this thing, you are looking like the biggest, laziest member of the team.
0: (laughs) Part of the inspiration for the design came from a trip that the lead designer took to Hong Kong. And almost every corner in town, towards noontime, you see locals having a short nap. Whether it was on a bench in the park, inside a public library, on the bus, on the metro, or even cleaning workers who fell asleep on the floor they had just barely finished cleaning. He says it was pre, he was pretty amazed how easy it was for them just to fall asleep spontaneously in a crowded public space, wow. literally turning themselves off while being totally exposed.
3: And so his thought was, well, why shouldn't you be able to do this at your desk? No, that makes sense. But ah, you have to go get your jammies on. You got to brush your teeth. No, just kind of keel over. Did you, you notice?
1: Not. Well, Did, you do that every day anyways.
0: Yeah,
3: but.
1: You just sleep on your desk.
3: Yeah, but I sleep under my desk. Yeah. Um, Have you noticed that Ben can sleep with his eyes open? Yeah. Creepy.
1: I learned to do that on the show, actually.
3: That is the creepiest thing.
0: It is sort of a useful tool,
3: though. How? Because at any moment, you just take a nap. Well, yeah, and that's where, like, Ben, hit the button. Hit the button, Ben. Ben, hit the button. Well, there's some complications. This is why we need video, because I think it would be fantastic for the peeps out there Mm. to watch... As we, as Ben sleeps during the show with his eyes open. <laughs> Have you noticed, too, that his eyes always dry out? Right. And then he's like, he has to like... Well, he doesn't blink. No, that's weird. Yeah. You're supposed to blink. Awkward. Hey, uh, got an interesting story for you here. Um, let's just say mm. you somehow got your hands on a lock of Thomas Jefferson's hair. Okay. You know, maybe... Somebody cut his hair way back in the day, mm-hmm. and they saved it, and now 190 years later, they've auctioned it. What would you pay? Wow. Um, For a lock of hair. Me personally? Yeah. Nothing. By the way, it only involves 14 strands of hair.
1: I would pay $6,000, $880.
3: What? $6,880? Yeah, that's exactly what they did. Pay six hundred and eighty, six hundred, six thousand eight hundred and eighty dollars. Are they going to page. clone? No, Thomas Jefferson. No, but no? they're, they're just, using the same technology as in Jurassic Park. Actually, they're just Ooh, yeah. yeah, they auctioned it off. They're not going to. No, they're not making a dinosaur. Is it encased
0: in some sort of ember? Amber. So yes, it is. Some sort of like no. tree sap. That's. No.
3: fossilized somehow. They're they're starting a new
1: park called the Founding Fathers Park.
3: Okay. The yeah. the pre auction. I would go. I'd the, go see Thomas <laughs> Jefferson. How you doing? Wow, Jefferson looks taller than I thought. No, look what, wooden teeth. Wow. What, what they are doing though is they they're making they made seven grand off of it when they thought they were going to make three. Hmm. And so now I'm trying to figure out where are they getting the hair because I'm going to bet there's a run on. Thomas Jefferson's hair and it just so happens because we're starting to show more video on mm. the radio show right right uh, because we're trying to spice it up bring mm. more color We've, we found the video of how they got the hair so we're going to play the video now okay can you see this guy So what great grave diggers yeah there can't, they so they, can't they, be they d- much left no, no they dug the hole oh okay and then, wow! The hinges back then were yeah. very. Whoa! They're shaving. They're shaving his head. They're shaving Tom. Thomas Jefferson. Wow! They're he, going to. They say they can easily. He's really yield, held up over the years. These are the words they use. They could easily yield about five fifty thousand dollars worth of hair off of that off of the old oh, wow. Founding Fathers kind of. Do you think this is a cottage industry? Yeah. Super popular back east. (laughs) You know how in the the west, I don't know, east they do it too. We do a lot of geocaching. Yes. Yeah. Back there, uh, head shaving of dead people. It's kind of the same thing. And the weird thing is counterfeit. They're shaving a lot of people that aren't Thomas Jefferson and they're saying it's Thomas Jefferson.
0: How would you know? You wouldn't. Yeah. Right? Yeah. See? Wow. I think the, the things video, you learn, but the I think the video learn. helped a lot. Yeah, it really explained, helped give character and some some content to the to the story because it is kind of confusing. Where did they get the hair? Yeah, the yeah.
1: unethical industry of founding father hair yeah. supply. Yeah. Wow, so
0: we're getting into black some market in, hair, investigative journalism here.
3: Oh yeah, we're exposing a black market. It used to be mm. that the hair only mattered to people that were living, mm. right? But now the hair of those that have died matters a lot. You, there's a market there. By the way, fingernails coming next. Trust me. Do you hear about this uh, this burger? This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Uh, there's a There's a burger. You're not into hot stuff. We always talk about. No, I hot, am. But not not like this hot. Well, I mean, you have to be able to enjoy it. This is a an adults only burger. It's a burger for adults only. It's like X rated burger. But not X-rated in the way you're yeah. thinking. Yeah. No, X-rated in the fact that it's it contains a chili sauce. It'll chili melt your sauce, face off. Fourteen thousand times hotter than a jalapeno. Right. <laughs> wow, that's that's hot. Totally weird. Perth, Australia's restaurant uh, Johnny's Burgers has created this horrible, crazy mean hamburger. Fourteen thousand times hotter than a jalapeno. Listen to this, though. You know that scale? Um, there's the there's the the Scoville units. Yes. So listen to this. This will blow your mind. This it has the Carolina Reaper chili mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the Boot Jalokia. Okay. It's probably accurately pronounced. Go ahead. Yeah, well, it's properly pronounced because yeah. if you don't pronounce it right, it sounds really bad. I think no.
1: it's actually pronounced no,
3: Jalakia. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's bad. Whatever I, it is, it's bad. I just saved us a lot y- you're of You're not problem. tossing this on your garden salad. No, no, no. Those two together combine to create a heat equivalent to 3.5 million on Scoville unit chart, <sighs> right? The, the international scale uh, on which spice is measured. It's ridiculous. This is like off the chart, fourteen hundred times hotter. And apparently, um, listen to listen to this. Uh, somebody, uh, while um, it seems innocent, right? A double cheeseburger. One bite is guaranteed to prove otherwise. The American style restaurant's creation is so hot that those suffering from a pre-existing stomach or heart condition not allowed to eat it. It's going to kill you. It just doesn't seem right. Mr Wong says that more than 300 brave souls have accepted the challenge but just one has succeeded. And then they had a stomach ulcer and then they died. Yeah. Well that guy actually was he had a um he he had a stomach that was on the outside of his body mm. and it was a machine that they just carried around. Oh. So he didn't die. He just has to push around a
0: I I like things sort of hot and spicy just a little bit, but you have to be able to
3: enjoy (laughs) the food. If you're just running around with your face on fire, that's not fun. You know what? Not fun for anyone (laughs) Um, because that's hard to put out. One man finished it, but he left with the shakes and the shivers (sighs) and had to take the next day off work. Yeah. But Mr. Wong says, I'm very cautious about who takes the challenge, and we ask competitors to sign a waiver. So that was sue. That they don't have any pre-existing health conditions that might preclude them from taking part. And they take part at their own risk. Why? You can't finish the sandwich. No. You can't finish the week. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Honey, guess what I'm about to do? (laughs) What, Jimmy? I'm about to die.
0: It's a good thing we're on vacation. We have all these plans, but I'm going to ruin it right now.
3: (laughs) Kids, you want to watch your father die right here at lunch? yeah Dad. I'm about to burn my guts out. <laughs> Go for it, Dad.
0: It's ridiculous.
3: Honey, do you find me more attractive when I can't control any of my bodily functions? Well, hang on, people are so dumb. Is't
0: that messed up? You know there's like you take one bite, you wait about thirty seconds, and you're done for the day. I' bet thought bet yeah. Your lips don't work. Your nose is running. And, le- and there's always that one guy that, oh, I can do this. I'll I just take it. another bite. Uh, and then you got to drive home with him. Or then uh, there's probably someone that goes in with the idea, the strategy. Eat as much as
3: you possibly can, yeah. as fast as get you can. Down, get it down, man. Get it
0: down. Before the pain starts. Yeah.
3: Who cares if it blows out the side of your body? <laughs> just get it in your gullet. It's ridiculous. <coughs> yeah. This makes Ben Ben's very sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> this is the audio of a guy that's gone through it. That's the guy that left with the, the shivers. That is such a weird description. Only one guy has done it, and he left with the shakes and the shivers and had to take the next day off work. Boy. There are people dying in countries because they lack food.
1: I think this is the national health crisis.
3: <sighs> and we're putting peppers out there. Jalapeno. Crazy stuff, folks. What do you do? What do you do? Well, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back, be talking about the importance of playtime for our little kids and for our big kids as well. I just want to throw that in. And we'll be talking with a researcher about why we might want to make sure our kids in school are getting a little more recess. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good and the strange in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, if you ask any kindergartner what their favorite part of school is, most will probably say recess or playing make-believe with their friends. But even though it might be a kid's favorite, maybe only 15 to 30 minutes of their entire day is dedicated to the playground or sandbox. The rest of the time that they're in school, kindergartners are in their desks prepping for their next assignment. And so are today's kindergartners getting too much academic pressure? Christopher Brown, Associate Professor of Curriculum and Instruction in Early Childhood Education at the University of Texas, suggests that recess and playtime for kindergartners might uh, not just be a break from schoolwork, but also a vital part of their education. And he joins us today to talk to us about why kids play is so important and why we might want to be giving them more of it. Uh, Chris Brown, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. And I know this is study or research that you're you're just basically barely getting underway. But uh, talk to us about what you're finding out in your research about uh, the kindergartners' time uh, and their need for play.
2: Sure. Well, this actually, my work is a little different than some work that's come out of the University of Virginia recently. Um, there's been some work there where they looked at longitudinal data, uh, data from 1998 to 2010 documenting how teachers, where they're spending their time in their instruction across the school year. And they found that teachers have shifted their instruction much more towards academic content, uh, reading and math instruction. And in my own work, I've been interested in how kindergarten has changed. I'm a former kindergarten teacher. Um, I taught in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I went back to my PhD, actually, because I was really curious and personally struggling with this idea that we need to force kids to learn more academic content. In kindergarten and as well as in preschool, <laughs> where the research isn't as clear about why they need to do that so early. Right. Um, and so, what I've been looking at now is well, we have this changed kindergarten, and I want to talk to different stakeholders. Well, what do they think about it? And so, I've been sharing a video that I made with a kindergarten teacher. A year ago, um, to documenting what's a typical day in kindergarten look like. And across most of the day, kids are, as you mentioned in the introduction, um, in academic work. And I'm wondering whether or not this is the best thing we should be doing for kids in the classroom. And so the data that I'm collecting is just talking to different stakeholders and seeing what they think about what they're witnessing in the video and what they think should be happening in kindergarten. Yeah.
3: I mean, and, it, and it's been, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. What about letting them play? Like, it, in the end, aren't we finding out that? Learning academic stuff. It's important and great. But in the end, there's other things they need to learn, like, you know, using their curiosity and um, get along with each other. <laughs> yeah. And social skills. And I mean, and it's like in the end, most of us aren't into academic work anyway by the time we're graduated. So maybe no. the social skills and, and figuring out how to be happy would be better.
2: Well, and also thinking about how to think intellectually. It's not just learning how to read or just learning how to count, but, you know, I have this question that I want to learn more information about. How do I do that? Um, When I get stuck on a problem, how might I work through it and have the persistence and the, you know, the motivation to keep moving forward and play... When we think of play, we think of kids, you know, doing silly things. But really, play is intellectual work for children. It's an opportunity for them to process, make sense of the world they're living in. And they do that typically with other people, which, you know, as we get older, we have to work with others to solve problems. Right. And so play gives them a great opportunity to just start to develop these skills early on.
3: And, and nothing, nothing is more realistic to life than two kids fighting over a teeter-totter.
6: Exactly. Right.
3: I mean, yes. that's right. That's marriage 101. <laughs> it's a lot of things. It. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And yet it's interesting, like it's I, maybe what it is, is we feel pressure as educators, as administrators, as parents to get this knowledge into their heads. So we think we'll push it earlier instead of just, you know, doing it at an appropriate time.
2: Well, I think that that's a huge issue. We also, you know, as they say, the world is getting flatter and people are, a lot of parents that I talk to are very worried about their kids and the future they're going to have in this world. So they're trying to do anything they can to help them get a leg up. And so Part of that, they think, is that they have to have their kids, you know, learning academic content early on. And one of the big things I talk to with friends, families, other colleagues is, you know, you just need to give kids opportunity to have time with you, to engage them intellectually, to have conversations with them, to talk with them about the world around them. And if they become curious about the world, they're going to pick up those skills they need to be able to work successfully in it. Yeah. So if you force kids to read, it's much different than giving kids books, reading to them, and giving them the chance to see that literacy is a lot of fun. Um, and it gives them an opportunity to learn a whole lot of new stuff that they're really curious about.
3: And couldn't you do that on the playground? You can. Right? You I mean, can do
2: that in the classroom. Yeah. You can do it. There's all sorts of different places you can do that. You can do that in your home with your kids when you're making dinner. I mean, mm-hmm. those, all those things can happen uh, in a very natural environment. So I think the worry is when parents get very concerned that if kids aren't where their friends are, um, that there's something wrong with them. And there are kids... Don't get me wrong my wife's a physical therapist kids do have developmental delays um, and pediatricians are very helpful in finding those out for you um, but if you if someone's friends reads before your child you shouldn't be freaking out
3: about that <laughs> I mean unless the kids 18 right you're, oh yeah if they're 18 <laughs> then you're like you got to start freaking out
2: yeah if they are if they're in school at 18 there's a, trouble, a problem going <laughs> <But> on <laughs>
3: that I think that's it and and I that's why I love the idea that you're you're asking these questions and you're doing it it seems like in a kind of um, uh, more in a what's the word i guess um you're, empirical yeah yeah exactly yeah you're you're going out and you're actually creating the data to to maybe squash some of these other ideas we're pushing kids really hard what do they miss when they're not or what do they gain in play and what do they miss when they don't get enough play
2: uh, well It it depends on when play happens across the day. In play, they gain a lot of different opportunities to foster the intellectual development. Um, One thing play gives an opportunity to do is to process what they're learning in their world, Um, whether it is something fascinating or terrific or whether it's something stressful and horrifying. um, Play is an opportunity for kids to help them make sense of what's happening in their lives. Um, And so that's a really important factor there. Intellectually, play gives them a chance to experiment, to try new things out in a safe Place where they aren't going to be punished or seen as doing something wrong because they're experimenting with sand or with mud or with blocks or with rain. Right. Um, also, play gives them a chance to foster conversations with their peers about their world um, and also to create fantasies about what they'd like their world to be like. And, and there's just all these different opportunities. In school, you mentioned recess. Recess is a time for kids to recharge, it gives their brains a break. Um, I, I think one thing we forget as adults how much we ask kids to do in school. Learning to read is a very hard Mm. skill to develop, and it takes time. You can't just do it instantly. Uh, and And kids, when we keep pushing all this academic content on their minds, it's a lot of intellectual work. And so they do need breaks from that. They need an opportunity to recharge, refresh, and move forward. If we don't give them those breaks, they burn out. They, they get frustrated and they give up. And so we have to be really careful with that. Yeah,
3: and stress out. Yeah. I mean, that's, yes. oh, yeah. that's intense. So there
2: are kids in third grade that are stressed, and that's scary. Oh, yeah.
3: Um, I mean, they got the rest of their life to stress. Yes, they do. But, I mean, and too, it's almost like we create, we condition them to get stressed, right? Because especially a kid that might really need to get out and just run around, uh, no, nah, we're not, we're not going to let you do that. Just a little bit, not a lot. Yeah.
2: No, and then that's and that can be troubling. And I think it I I hope I don't come across as blaming teachers here. Right. I'm not I'm not doing that at all. We're in a system right now where we're focused on this idea that academic achievement is the marker of success. And we start testing our kids really early. So teachers are under a lot of uh, pressure to make sure kids are performing well.
3: So much pressure and I mean and blamed for a lot of it when oh. when it's a system that we've created. Um, and parents that push the system. Let's let's take a quick break, Chris. We're talking with Christopher Brown, who is um, doing some studies on kindergartners and their need to play. Uh, we'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, joining us is Christopher Brown. He's an associate professor of curriculum and instruction in early childhood education at the University of Texas, and is doing a lot of research on um, our kindergartners. As a past kindergarten teacher, he's trying to help us figure out what's the best mix of um, ex- or, you know activity, free time, even I guess you know recess, but uh, playtime, in order to, to maximize their learning and even minimize their stresses. Chris Brown, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for being with us.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
3: Such an interesting idea, too. Um, and again, we don't want to—teachers, they're not the ones to blame. There's there's just a lot of pressure to get these, these kids up to speed and get them into Harvard.
2: <laughs> yes, there is. <laughs> there's, well, there's a lot of pressure to get all kids— You know, up to speed. So everyone goes to college is the goal. People will say, and and that's and that's a big question we need to ask as a society: is what do we see being? uh, What do we want kids to be when they grow up? Um, You know, what what should be their opportunities, and how do we get them there? Um, It's not just about also you know finding a job, but it's also helping them develop the skills to be able to you know, live and operate in a democratic society, right. and, and play is one of those places where we learn to do that. We're, as you said earlier, you know, we learn to get along with fighting over the teeter-totter. Yeah. Um, and we learn there are other people out there that have different views about the world, and how do we get along with each other in that type of environment?
3: What well, couldn't it be just uh, so much more experiential, where I, I was... I've taught, not to brag, but <laughs> I have taught it in church in my Sunday school time. I've taught... Uh, The the preschoolish kids. Um, Great. And you know what? There's a point where the idea of pulling out a lesson is pretty much not going to happen. So (laughs) that's when we would just pull out the little rope and have everyone hang on to it, and we'd go take everyone for a walk around the building. And
2: And, and you have a conversation while you do that. That's
3: exactly what you do. And you can watch them, and you can go talk about flowers and tell them that God made the flowers. And you can give the lessons as you go.
2: Oh, very much so. And, and that takes a lot of time. And yeah. It's, not, it's, not, it's not structured. It's not easy. Yeah. no. And, and, you know, kindergarten classrooms should be loud and noisy places. Um, but they're in schools where kids are in fifth grade doing very different type of work, and sometimes that's really frowned upon. Mm. Um, so it's a lot of pressure on teachers to you know, make sure everybody's quiet and orderly. Um, and and I, I can't tell you what a hard job it is for kindergarten teachers uh. when you have 22 kids and one adult. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot of pressure. And so they're trying to do everything they can to help kids be successful in school, but that success is usually typically very narrow. Uh can they read? Can they count? And that's all they're really worried about.
3: That's it and you got whatever 8 months to do it. Right and uh and don't make much noise and keep your door shut <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> so sad talk about so your research though it's validating this hypothesis huh that the kids need the time and the teachers agree
2: well i think it's it's i wouldn't say validating i think a lot of people recognize that kids everyone wants kids to be happy and successful in kindergarten no one's going to say kindergarten should be a horrible place right uh, so it's trying to find that space, though, within the dynamic and environment that we're working in right now where, come third grade, kids do need to be reading on grade level. Um, and so how do we change that conversation around? Well, reading is just one of many skills we want kids to have when they leave kindergarten. Um, and kids... I'm not saying we shouldn't teach academics. I would never, ever say that. But it should be in a balanced approach where academics are part of a larger intellectual investigation within the classroom where we help kids be successful. Mm. Um, In my work, which is in early child education, a lot of conversation is around what's wrong with kids when they come in the school door. And that's really disconcerting to me because we set it up in a way that kids are already failing. Um, I hope that with my work that we can start shifting the conversation and looking at all the talents kids bring into the classroom, and how can we build off those to help them be successful in the classroom
3: oh, I like that and uh I mean I just look at too the diversity of classrooms right so oh yeah, in Utah, a classroom in an, in a suburb a wealthier suburb compared to inner city compared to other cities compared to east coast west coast uh compared to uh, multiple languages i mean it's a there's no one model is there.
2: No, there's not. And it, it takes a skilled person to take all those 22 different people and help them get where they need to be by the end of the school year. Hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, I was doing an interview a week ago, and a, a, the person asked me, do you think teachers are lazy? And I was shocked that oh, as they wow. asked me that question. Um, and, and I have worked in schools for the past 20 years, and I have never met a lazy teacher. No. Teachers are working really hard at this. It's that we're asking for specific outcomes from kids, and we're not thinking about the bigger picture. And, yeah, you know, we, when, yeah.
3: I'll go ahead. I was, I, I was thinking we think, we think that we can build a system, and we can just pump out kids with degrees. Right. It's, it's got to be people touching people's lives and reading people well and setting people up. To succeed,
2: right. and and people that are wanting to do those things. Yeah. Right? no one asks kids, "Are you happy?" <laughs> that's you're not right. a test question. <laughs>
3: yeah, I
2: yeah. Well, I mean, it's more, but, you know, it's, if you're presented with a problem, how might you solve
3: it? Exactly, exactly. And,
2: and I think that's really
3: important. And trust the teachers. I guess that's yeah. the problem. Is you know why? I'll tell you. Here's the sol. Here's the solution, Chris. It's because okay. there's unions. Okay, teachers are unionized. You know, and what ends up happening is it becomes a political issue. But the, you go sit in your kindergartner's class for a year and then you'll get a taste. Um, teachers don't mean ill. They, they, we all need to kind of trust the people that are doing what they're doing. Trust the well, teachers I, and educate a- them
2: most teachers like in Texas as a right to work state so the union question is very different yeah. um, i don't want to go down that no right on. no it's it's just that's
3: uh, it gets political right
2: it does it does and and it's easy to blame teachers right uh, and which is unfortunate um and so we need to really think about what are we asking teachers to do and i think there's also one myth that is that anybody can teach and we don't see what a profession it really is. And right. I think that's something – I'm a teacher educator, so that's something I really talk with my students about is, you know, thinking about as a profession, how to, what skills do we need to be successful in the classroom? And there are a lot, and it takes time. Um, and it's a lot of pressure on teachers to be performing as experts as soon as they walk in the door. Mm. When We know through research it does take time to become an expert. You in the bet. Field. As with anything, I mean, it takes time to become an expert radio host. Oh, you (laughs) You have
3: no idea, (laughs) and I I feel like I'm in kindergarten. Um, Talk about—we got to wrap it up. But talk about um, what we can do as parents to, you know, facilitate this to help our education system, to help our teachers and our kids maximize playtime and learning time.
2: On a general perspective, one, get to know your teachers and be their allies. I think parents have a lot more power than they know. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of times when parents interact with teachers, it's over a problem or an issue rather than thinking about how they can support them. Um, Another thing is, as a parent, we are in an election year. Education is not part of the conversation right now, and I wish it were. Right. Um, we need to have this conversation. And the big issue is kids don't vote. If kids could vote, it may be a different conversation. <laughs> it's uh, totally so, uh, that's totally true.
3: They'd be voting their teachers honest. out, though. That's the <laughs> oh, problem.
2: Well, a lot of kids, well, a lot of kindergartners love their kindergartners No, a lot teachers. of
3: kids love their <laughs> teachers. That's true. So,
2: that's so and true. Most Most survey research shows kids like their teachers, they like their schools. And so that's something to think about. Um, And then also, you know, just as parents, thinking about how are they supporting their kids at home? I'm not saying to drill and kill reading or literacy, but just are they engaging with their kids in ways that help them foster a love of learning, foster a love of being curious, um, are they giving them the space and the opportunity to just play and be kid? Mm. And, and I think a lot of issues parents under this pressure and the stress feel like they have to schedule everything in a child's life so that they're ready for school, and they need to recognize that there is a lot of value in free play, outdoor play, and a lot of value for them engaging with their kids in play.
3: Yeah. No, great stuff. Chris, keep up the great work. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank Thank you so much. Christopher Brown, Associate Professor of Curriculum and Instruction in Early Childhood Education at the University of Texas. Go Longhorns. <laughs> good stuff. We'll take a break. Come back. Visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up uh, on their show at the top of the hour. Then we'll do a little hero of the day. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Bye-bye. I need somebody help, not just anybody Welcome back, you know everybody, I need to the Matt Townsend Show. we got to throw it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour, Spencer and Jeremy. Hello, gentlemen.
4: Hello, Matthew. Uh,
3: How are you both doing?
4: Good. Fantastic. You healthy? Healthy oh, and
3: Yeah. Right, have you guys recovered from last night's game uh, on the softball field?
4: No. My wrist is really messed up. Seriously. You messed what your am? wrist up. Uh, a dude hit a ball all the way to the fence, and when I was chasing it down in left field, I slipped and had to catch myself with my wrist and Ooh. heard a pretty significant pop in my right wrist. Whoa! Oh, yeah. Uh-oh. So it's, yeah, oh, it's... Well, that's why it's in a cast. That's no, weird. It's no bueno. I'm just kidding. No,
3: it's bueno. <laughs> is it? Is it broken?
4: No. No, I'm sure it's just, a, you know, a sprain. Like, it, it's... I sprained things before. Do you want me to look at it? I'm a doctor. You are a doctor, so maybe you should come diagnose.
3: Bring your wrist over here when you're done, and I'll. With my right wrist. I'll splint it. I've got some tape and some pencils,
4: some rulers. What's weird (laughs) is I feel like, just as an athlete, you know, growing up, I hardly ever got hurt. And so I just kind of expect to play and compete, and Mm -hmm. I can pick things up, even though I haven't competed at you know, a really competitive level for a long time, that I'll just be just fine. You see, but I left last night, and I was like, man, I'm feeling old. You're discouraged. My right arm hurts. My right wrist is all messed up.
3: <laughs> Sounds like somebody's aging.
4: I pulled my groin the other day. Like, yeah. <laughs> <The> <laughs> that, that is, is the, worst. the worst.
3: Dude, I can't get out of my chair without pulling my groin.
4: <laughs> TMI, man.
3: I'm sorry. That's, when you're in your 40s, you wait. It, on, let me just give you a little secret. You fell... And you hurt your wrist. When you're 47 and you fall, your life flashes before your eyes. It's a different fall.
4: Well, it's just like I should be able to catch my body weight no problem, right? It was just such a, like, normal play. And then I got up and went to throw the ball, and I was like, oh, man, my – Wrist hurts so bad.
3: Do you know what I've got? I've got another activity. If you don't want to play ball anymore, that might be a little easier for you.
4: But I do want to play softball. I want to play
3: ball. What about what about just doing? The, in Detroit, they have a group that does blind. Uh, they blindfold and then they go mow. They put blindfolds on and then they mow blindfolded. It's a pretty cool group, mow and lawns. they mow lawns. And they'll just mow like
5: my neighborhood with the twelve
3: rows. Right, and you know sometimes they hit something. Uh sometimes they don't. But it's fun for all. And they're looking for they're looking for some people. So I'm wondering if you guys want to start that here at BYU.
5: Uh, the shortstop for the baseball team, Hayden Nielsen, yeah? he was in the other day and he said that he owns like two lawn he runs like two lawn crews. And they have he a really? contract at like twenty four Wendy's.
3: Yep. Oh, no, that's big money.
5: He's got a good business going on. Tell him
3: to try it blindfolded. <laughs> yeah. Totally doubles the fun.
5: He does it with his opposite hand. The uh, <laughs> yeah, the uh, weed whacker. And just
3: you guys. I'm sorry you had such a hard game. Um, talk got, to me.
5: We got worked, man. I, I
3: know. I heard. Well, I heard the score was 20 to three. That's that's almost that's How like the Cavs Warriors.
4: Score? We were trying to bury that. No,
3: it's it's actually up on BYU Sports Nation's website.
4: Wait, it was 20 to three? I had it as 19 to three.
3: No, it was 20. That last one counted. Oh,
4: okay. Yeah. I was so angry.
3: You remember when you fell and that that one scored? Yeah. <sighs> I'm sorry we had to yeah. go there. Hey, talk to me about what's going to be on your show today. I know you guys got to get out fast.
5: Today is the most compelling show.
3: That's what you said yesterday.
5: At least two and a
4: half weeks. Oh, wow! I say 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> no,
5: we've got we've got some fun ideas uh, rolling around today. Namely, Ziggy Ansah landed in the top 50 on uh, NFL Network. They have the players in the NFL vote on the best players, and he made the top 50. We'll tell you where. And then we'll discuss this, which is our Twitter question today. Which BYU, what BYU sports story would you make it to an ESPN 30 for 30 oh, cool. type documentary? We are going to debut the trailers for our ideas.
4: Ooh. With music and everything Ooh. on the show. Cool. Uh-huh. uh-huh. That's what a... if I told you, Matt? Tins, what, what, what? That some BYU sports stories deserve to be shared with the world.
3: Oh, totally. Share them, buddy.
4: Oh, I, we're going. We I are going you. to do that.
3: Share them. That is. Um, that's and a Dave cool Rose idea. Studio, that's, coach. and you oh, could yeah. do that the rest that's of your, your career. You guys could just keep sharing these stories.
5: What if I told you?
3: What if I told you?
5: Yeah, I'm. Just, I'm just practicing that voice because that's the ESPN 30. 30 did somebody 30 just zip again. up? What if? What if I told you? Yep.
4: I just heard someone I zipping did. up. Zip, zip.
3: I hope that's your coach. He coat.
5: has no reason not to think that's your fly. It's a zip. It's a
4: zipper on a makeup bag.
3: Oh boy! Don't ever admit that on no, the
4: air. No, I. Uh, there's no shame. Man, sure, this is no. television.
3: Are you sure it wasn't your People girdle? Need to get
4: with the times. We wear makeup on television.
3: <laughs> I wear it at home.
4: It's what happens.
3: I wear it at home, and I'm not even on TV.
4: Just cause. Just cause.
3: I wear it just cause. Okay, I've got it. I've got to See, I've now that's let something you. Something
4: you should never admit.
3: I know. Well, you should also not zip up on air.
4: <laughs> which hey, is why I don't
3: Really quickly um I've one thing we're starting on my show we're going to be doing a lot of video on my show. Okay. Uh it's the first video radio show where I play video on my radio show. Good idea or bad idea? Um, Lots of it. Do it. <laughs> I'm going to do why, it. Why not? I'm doing it. I'm doing it.
4: Little video. Came, though. That's yeah.
5: how I live my life. Por que no?
3: Por que no. Well, guys, it's going to be a great show. I can already tell. Uh, I I hope you're, you guys can heal. I wish the best for your arm, Spencer. If you Thanks, want me sir. to work on that, bring it over. I'll it, do man. some energy work on it.
4: All right. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Will you
3: bring an energy bar, by the way? <laughs>
4: I'll bring one over.
3: I'll need that. Have a great show and keep zipped up. Thank you.
4: Stay sweet. See you. Ya.
3: See you, ya. <laughs> sweetie. Have fun. Good stuff. Man, they got routed, it sounds like. That's sad. I would quit playing. Why would you want to play intramural sports if it's going to be that much work and you might blow your wrist out? I wonder why they didn't ask me to play. Seems strange.
1: You have batted for the Boston Red Sox.
3: Yes, I have. I totally have. Taking a little batting practice in Fenway Park. Not a big deal. Just something we do in the biz. Anywho, hey, um, I've got some more stories for you. I got to, I got to tell you this one before we go. Um, let's just say you win two hundred fifty grand, two hundred fifty thousand dollars. What would you do? Some would go to Disneyland. Ben would pay his attorneys' fees and. Probably go to work yeah. to pay the rest of his fees.
1: Probably get a job that actually pays me. Yeah.
3: Yeah. A job, we call mm-hmm. that. Just a job. This is not a job. This is an internship. Well, oh, internship. That's what uh, A court-appointed it. internship. Okay. South Carolina woman scratched off a $250,000 lottery win, and she plans to retire within a year. And what she's she's going to go do what she's always wanted to do. She has always wanted to be a greeter at Walmart. Wazowski. <laughs> Welcome to Walmart. That's Wazowski from, what's that called? Monsters, Inc. That's that great that lady. Welcome to Walmart. I don't know why, she says, but all my life I've wanted to work at Walmart. She told the lottery officials. That's cool. I Wal- don't
1: think she deserves to win that 250 Why?
3: Walmart's a great place to work. Every if I don't know if you've been there. More smiles per aisles. But those are printed on stickers. And, right. Yeah. But the, the employees are nice. Uh, you've had a bad time at Walmart, haven't you?
1: I don't think they like me very much.
3: Well, you keep trying to return stuff after you've used it. Okay. Well,
1: I, I think that should be acceptable.
3: They don't even sell bathtubs. So quit trying to return them, pal. The doctors uh she said she waited until she got home, turned on her favorite show, and um the doctors before she scratched off the two hundred and fifty thousand dollar win, you know I gotta get home, put out the dog, turn on doctors, then I'll scratch off my lotto win, two hundred and fifty grand I don't know what I would do two hundred and fifty thousand dollars i would i would uh I wouldn't probably do much. I would stay here. Um, I'd hire a whole new staff.
1: Wait, what? Anyway. Except for me, though, right?
3: Yeah.
6: Yeah,
1: I'd get...
3: Well, I'm not really Kaylee staff. Dane's. I'm, like,
1: I'm do... like co-talent.
3: Yeah. Is that what we're calling you? Yeah. That's, Co-?
1: That's what I appointed myself as.
3: Co-talent. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's funny. I've never heard that term.
1: Yeah, me and Don were talking about it. Really? Yeah.
3: Are you sure the word was co talent? Yeah, that's, sure that's was what I it? heard at least. I don't wanna I don't wanna be a jerk. But today is jerky day. <laughs> so anyway, that's all I'll say about that. Hey, um as you know, <clears throat> we always like to end the show on a hero story. Today's no different. So this is a really cool story about a Virginia mom that takes in six kids of a best friend who died of cancer. Listen to this. What would you do if a dear friend who was dying of cancer asked you to take care of her six children? Well, for Stephanie Coley, her husband and three kids, the answer was simple. Open their home up and their hearts. They may not share a last name, but they are the very definition of a family Uh, According to uh, Dana Jacobson of CBS Sports, Coley's expanding family is finding joy in the little ways after being brought together by grief. After one of her closest friends, Beth Latekep, died of breast cancer last month, Coley took the Latekep's six kids, ranging from ages 2 to 15, into her Virginia home. I wanted her to live so much. No mother deserved to live and raise her kids as much as she did, Coley said about Latekep. I mean, they needed her. Late Kep was a single mom and dear friend who leaned on Coley while battling cancer last year. When the doctors told her Late Kep that they'd run out of options in April, Coley was the only option to take care of Late Kep's children. She was never worried about herself. She was never worried about anything but them, Coley said. And she looked at me and said, can you do this for me? Can you do this? When Coley told her husband, there were six kids, he took a long pause before saying, well, we'll do what we have to do, Coley said, and the kids were excited. When Coley told Lake of her decision, they all cried together, and I told her that I would love them, I would never be able to love them like she would, but I would do the very best that I could. So there you go, folks. That is the definition of a hero. The definition of a hero is a friend that steps up and does what has to be done, and it's not easy, it's not perfect, it just is, and it's and it's right. And so, that's it. You are the hero of the day, Stephanie Coley and your family. Thank you for being such great examples to all of us. That's why we do this show, folks, so that you can see the good in the world. And remember, you're part of that good. We can all make a difference by just looking after each other. We'll be back again tomorrow. More tools, more ideas to live longer, love stronger. Until tomorrow, take care of each other. Make it a great day. We'll talk again tomorrow.